This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 530, a conversation with Corey Seidelmeyer. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 530, a conversation with Corey Seidelmeyer. And as I say that, I realize that I asked Corey specifically, how do I I pronounce your last name? And I've already forgotten it. So my apologies profusely to Corey. Um, Today is a great episode. I got to sit down with Corey recently, and we had about uh, almost a three-hour chat about his time at Marvel uh, working, first of all, his secret origin uh, in terms of how he first got into comics, how he became an intern at Marvel, how that then turned into a career at Marvel uh, in various different places, including editorial, but also most prominently and for what a lot of us kind of now know him as, is being a, the collections guru, specifically the, the man behind the current versions of the Marvel Masterworks. Um, so we get, really get into it and discuss kind of how that came about. Um, there is a ton of questions, like a metric ton of questions from the Marvel Masterworks board that kind of poured in over the last month or so uh, to ask Corey. So Corey was uh, extremely patient. Uh, he kind of went through and picked kind of... Uh, the ones that he thought were most accessible in terms that he could actually answer, um, that weren't just answering about specific volumes or back-to-print, because that's not really his purview. Um, the back-to-print stuff is more a question that would be reserved for David Gabriel, if we ever get him on the show someday. Um, so we were able to kind of go through uh, the wish list of questions from a lot of people. Um, so the first 75 minutes or so are basically just Corey and I chatting about his career in comics up till now, and then we kind of really go through the weeds. And so if you just want to hear the rat-a-tat-tat of many questions, uh, you can skip ahead to the 75-minute mark, but I think you'd be missing out on a lot. Um, Corey's really interesting, and uh, his career in comics is really fascinating in terms of what he's worked on. Uh, we're going to have him back at, at some point in the future um, because there's a whole kind of segment of his editorial career we didn't have a chance to touch on, including um, his Fantastic Four Big in, Big in Japan um, as well, So, which is a fantastic series that he helped edit. So I want to get back to, uh, to chatting with Corey at some point in the future um, so we can talk more about what he actually was able to work on as an editor. Um, we, we just got so carried away with so much that he's done and so much to talk about that we didn't get to uh, really get around to all of it. So uh, make sure you buckle in. This is going to be a long one, but uh, I think you're really going to enjoy it. You can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Um, if you uh, after listening to this uh, this interview, if you have any questions for Gormu, otherwise known as John Rhett Thomas, uh, he's going to be on recording an episode for next week's podcast, uh, probably on Tuesday, December the 5th. So if you listen to this prior to the 5th and you have questions that kind of pop up that you want to ask him, because um, we're going to do, be doing kind of a market watch update and maybe riffing on some of the things that Corey talked about here as well. So if you have any questions that kind of come to mind because of this conversation, make sure you get those in uh, either to comicshenanigans at gmail.com uh, prior to the 28th or there's a thread on uh, the marvel masterworks board questions for i believe it's called questions for gormu something like that uh you can find it pretty easily um and just put some questions there to kind of uh, leapfrog off of this conversation but without further ado because i know you're tired of listening to me ramble on for three minutes let's get right into the conversation with Corey. enjoy Corey, welcome to the comic shenanigans podcast how are you doing today I'm doing pretty good. How you doing, Adam? I'm doing very well. I'm uh, excited to, uh, to chat with you, and uh, obviously people in the forum are excited to hear from you, and uh, I'm sure they would like it if I got out of the way and just basically bullet-pointed every question they had, but I actually have some questions of my own. Uh, I mean, there, there were quite a few questions, so uh, however we go about it, I, I think we'll keep busy. I, I don't think that'll be a problem, but uh, let's let's do your let's do your kind of secret origin. What is it that kind of got you into comics as as a reader first? What's the secret origin of Corey? Um, 
um, the secret origin of Corey. Um, you know, I mean, comics were kind of around a little bit when I was a kid, but they didn't. I mean, comic books in the sense of like you know, the, the the broad notion of them in American culture of being superheroes weren't something that really came along for me until the first Tim Burton Batman movie. I mean, I had comics around. I had two older brothers. Um, the oldest is eight years older than me, so like his comics from when he was a kid were kind of around a bit. And, like Richie Rich and things like that, which which I enjoyed as a kid. Mm-hmm. And then there were different like you know like licensed basically cartoon comics. I mean, I liked Rocky and Bullwinkle, so I bought Rocky and Bullwinkle comics. <laughs> and uh, my brother and I, you know, were like prime age for Transformers, and so my brother had a paper route. He was a little older than me, and uh, he bought Transformers comics, and I read those. But apart from that, I didn't really, you know, even though I grew up in a very small town, like 2,000 people, and, you know, outside of uh, Toledo in northwest Ohio. And, okay. you know, there wasn't a heck of a lot to do. You know, I'd go to the, the pharmacy, and they had a little spinner rack, but it just didn't, I don't know, for whatever reason, it didn't really click for me. Um, even though comics were kind of there, and I was aware of, you know, Spider-Man and his amazing friends and other things like that you know, from television. But uh, it wasn't until the, the first Tim Burton Batman movie was you know, a huge thing when I was about 10 that uh, you know, comics came a little bit more into my orbit. And there was, a, there was actually a girl that did a presentation in one of my elementary school classes after that movie came out, like the, you know, the next school year after that summer movie hit. And uh, she got a guy who was a local cartoonist that did a satire strip called Fat Man that was in a local newspaper that was a Batman spoof. And he came in and did a presentation uh, in his homemade Batman costume, which was a... Uh, um, yeah, it was something. Uh, it, w- it was definitely something. Um, he was... He was, he was true blue um, in his love and he brought in some comics uh, including uh, Dark Knight Returns and it was like you know the original four issue prestige format ones not a paperback or whatever and you know he kind of like passed them around but he asked everybody like you know we're like you know 10 or 11 year olds he's like yeah treat them really careful and uh, <laughs> so, so we're just flipping through them and, and I remember looking through Dark Knight Returns the, the last issue and uh, you had Batman and Superman fighting. And as a kid, you're like, what the heck is this? Batman and Superman are fighting? What's that about? <laughs> and, uh, and you know, there's a scene where you know, Batman's got his crazy, like, boots, and he's just just digging his boot into Superman's shin. And you're like, whoa, this is, this is, this is, this is something I haven't seen. You know, it's not, you know, <laughs> when, uh, when Super Friends reruns were on, this, this isn't exactly what... Uh, you know, what I was getting, and uh, it just it made me curious about what that was about, and, uh, you know, I didn't know where you got something like, you know, like that, but I, next time I went to the, the local pharmacy, I, you know, looked at the spinner rack, and I was like, oh, oh, there's Batman comics here, okay, so I picked one up, and uh, it was, uh, had a really cool Mike Mignola cover, like, Batman being drugged into the grave by a bunch of, uh, like rotting corpses. It was just like, yeah, sort of the 1990s version of an EC cover, and it's white. It was pretty cool. And uh, it was part two of a three part story, and I thought it was pretty cool. So I got on my bike and, and rode back, and it turned out they still had part one. And, and I just started reading Batman comics, and yeah, that was that kind of set me on my way. Wow. 
So is kind of so in those kind of formative years, Batman was your guy. Yeah, I mean, I I, I was like a a true blue Batman dude from you know whenever that issue came out. It was probably ninety one, ninety, probably ninety, um, and you know uh, just was you know really loved the character and loved a lot of the work and you know worked backwards and uh, you know read other things that I came across as being you know. You know in different magazines, you know, it was around the time that Wizard Magazine had first started. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, again, the notion, like, the concept of a comic book store was, like, couldn't have even, like, envisioned that such a thing could exist at the time. You know, because, again, yeah, I was growing up in a small town of, like, 2,000 people, and, uh, you know, I just never had stumbled across any such thing, and I just figured, you know, whatever they had on the spinner rack, those were the comics that were available in the world. And, uh, yeah, eventually a friend, you know, that uh, lived uh, out of town, like in Columbus, in a uh, you know, larger city, state capital in Ohio, he got into comics, and, like, I went to visit him, and his mom took us to the comic store and kind of blew my mind, and so, you know, then I just started going to the comic books. I found out there was one near me and started going, you know, regularly, and just, I don't know, an obsession was born. Wow. Now, at what point do you go from being a fan to thinking like I want to? I want to work in the industry. I want to figure out how to break in. Um, you know, I'd, I'd always been interested broadly. I mean, from you know, from that point forward, you know, I'd been interested in comics as a medium and uh, yeah, as like a, a mode of entertainment and popular culture. Um, and I hadn't thought of it as like an express. Certainly, well, certainly not as an express career to get into until I was, you know, a couple of years into college, and I had started out as a, an English lit and creative writing double major, and then kind of just wasn't feeling where the um, where the program was. It wasn't really clicking with where I wanted to go and what my interests were, and I switched over to popular culture studies and college was, was the university where they started popular culture studies as an academic discipline, so they had some really amazing faculty, and yet they kind of were able, it's sort of an interdisciplinary field where it, within English lit, I always felt that it was a little bit too much of the notion of like the, the academic in their high tower that takes a text and reads it and sort of puts down their decrees of what things are and what things mean. Um, and it always felt, I don't know, maybe a little egotistical or arrogant or just a little, in its way, somewhat arbitrary to me. But within popular culture studies, it was an offshoot of American culture studies, which in its way takes a sort of similar like textual approach to, uh, to what it does. But popular culture studies, when they branched off on their own, disagreed with that and thought that taking a, uh, an approach that engaged more interdisciplinarily um, with aspects of sociology and psychology, but also engaged the audience was a crucial thing. And, you know, doing interviews and actually taking into account the way that, part- that the audience participates with a text um, was a key aspect. And when I switched over to that, a lot of things just kind of clicked into place. And one of the things that I was interested in was comics and 
you know, I, rather than sort of getting shrugs from my professors, like, we don't know what to do with any of that, um, <laughs> I get a lot of engagement, and it let me kind of just start to run with things, and out of that, I got the notion of, like, you know, maybe, maybe this comic book thing, you know, I, I love it, I love the language, I love the, the independence that it offers, and you know, maybe this is something to pursue. And I also, you know, I think comics at their best are always subversive, um, that I can't think of any comic that hasn't been you know, massively influential in terms of the evolution of different genres or the, the language of the medium that wasn't subversive at its core. And, uh, you know, at the time, I had not really read Marvel stuff for a while. I was more into, like, alternative and underground kind of things. And there was... Uh, it was around the you know, around 2000, 2001, where Marvel was deep into bankruptcy, and it was you know it was kind of I remember I read the comics journal, and it was just sort of one month after another of you know uh, statements about bank loans and the, you know copyright for Spider Man being put up as collateral and what's going to happen, and and it seemed like from the outside in that somebody just decided that. You know, throw anything at the wall and see what sticks at Marvel. And they were doing things like bringing on uh, Mike Allred on X-Force, which was, you know, it was the biggest sort of most mainstream, most archetypal 90s comic book. But then you're taking this alternative guy and putting him on it. And then, uh, you know, things like Pete Bag doing a Spider-Man one-shot. I thought that was amazing when that was announced. <laughs> um, so that made me think, maybe I should do an internship at Marvel. And I'd actually had a friend in college, uh, Mark Sumarak. We kind of, we sort of knew each other, but we mostly had mutual friends. We kind of orbited each other in a way. And uh, Mark had done an internship at Marvel. And that's kind of what gave me that. I was like, oh, you know, Mark did an internship at Marvel. Like, heck, maybe I could do that too. Mm-hmm. I was going to be in New York anyways for a semester of school. And, uh, yeah, I figured, you know, I love what I'm doing, but I'm majoring in popular culture studies. <laughs> so, you know, I might need to boost up the resume a little bit as much as I love it. And, uh, yeah, so I applied to a, an honor seminar and came to New York for that for the fall of 2001 and uh, applied and got the Marvel internship before then. And, uh, yeah, was just looking at doing an internship to boost up the resume and, it wasn't really my intention, but it ended up turning into a job. Now, how long was the internship itself? Uh, internship was just like a three-month summer internship from like June to the end of August of 2001. And, uh, you know, I was a college student in New York and never really thought about moving to New York at all. Um, you know, again, I was just looking to boost up my, my, regu- my resume before graduation and, uh, I didn't have any money, so it's pretty much I'm going to intern five days a week. And apart from that, I've got like my like hyper specific meal plan figured out, so I don't go like into the red um, <laughs> on my like. You know, I think I, I think my my budget was like thirty three dollars a week for food. Oh, um, oh so. God! <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm being good at budgets is good as a, when you get into being an editor. You've got to figure out how to make numbers work one way or another. And, uh, you know, I, uh, yeah, I just showed up five days a week, and I was originally going to intern uh, in Tom Brevoort's office. And uh, Tom is, 
not known for loving interns, and he, the guys in the trades office didn't have an intern, and they needed somebody desperately, and so I was a warm body, and they threw me over in the direction of the trades office, and I was going to show up five days a week while I was interning, and so I was, I was over there five days a week and then kind of floated wherever else I might be useful um, during that time, and you know, while I was interning, I just... I just kind of stuck my nose into whatever I could learn because I figured if I'm here, I might as well at least make a good impression. And yeah, I assumed that I was, you know, after the internship, just going to go back to college. And maybe if I wanted to write a paper that had something to do with comics, if I made a good impression, I could, you know, give somebody a call. Maybe they'd give me a quote or give me some sort of background um, for a paper that I write in the future. But, you know, what it turned out to be is that, uh, that the trades guys just kind of let me run with whatever I wanted to get my nose into. And, you know, at the time, you know, we were kind of getting the essentials running in a, in a, in a more, like, dedicated fashion. You know, there'd been sort of a initial run of, like, Wolverine and Spider-Man essentials, but, you know, they, you know, hadn't, come out at uh, as much of a regular clip or as with as yeah, and they've been focused on core properties and they wanted to start doing things like Ant-Man and Doctor Strange and I remember when I, you know, I came on as an intern I got tasked with scanning photostats for these essentials which you know it was and it was like on oh, this amazingly ancient power mac which in retrospect was this was pretty cool and then this thing was like a serious dinosaur and I just I sat there and they showed me how to you know they you know, gave me the, the fundamentals of scanning something and then some basic Photoshop stuff and I just uh, I just kind of went to town and then you know as I scanned the stuff I looked at you know what the contents were and I was like well this is kind of strange we're doing this Ant-Man book and I didn't really know anything about Ant-Man <laughs> but I was looking it was just trying to sort of um, use my time productively so you know we had like the old George Olszewski indexes and I was flipping through those um, and uh, saw that like hey you know this Ant-Man book doesn't have all the Ant-Man and the Wasp stories like why don't we put these Wasp stories in there and like you know they hadn't considered it and they're like oh that's a good idea so <laughs> and so those got tossed in there and then they were doing a, the first Doctor Strange essential and I forget what the break point was going to be it wasn't going to be the entire Strange Tales run um, and yeah I was working on the thing as an intern scanning stuff and I finished scanning everything so then it's like well teach me how to do the next step I mean then teach me how to do the next step and teach me how to do the next step and um, and I remember it was the the Doctor Strange essential wasn't complete Strange Tales run, and I was just like, well, yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Let's just make it the whole thing, right? I mean, that's a good idea. Just make the whole thing. People want to have the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're like, oh, yeah, that is a good idea. And so, you know, as an intern, I sort of, yeah, they started being like, well, you're an intern, but we're going to make you the essential guy now. You do the essentials, even though you're an intern. And uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just, you know, I just kind of... Uh, I don't know. Maybe I didn't shut up, or maybe I, maybe 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 I would. I just you know said whatever my opinion was, but you know it was it was it was taken as good advice, I guess. Uh, the guy that was running the office at the time was a guy named uh, Ben Abernathy, who was a really great dude, and he uh, 
yeah, he left uh, shortly after I finished the internship, and uh, yeah, he was kind of kind of really kept everything, you know, kept all the trains running on time, and it was really kind of the core of the office. And after he left, things kind of went into a little bit of of you know disarray, and you know, in the meantime, I was getting near the end of the internship, and. Uh, I had different conversations with a variety of the editors there you know, at Marvel while I was an intern, and uh, you know, Axel Alonzo and I kind of, uh, I don't know, kind of, you know, we, we both were into a, a, a really great uh, San Francisco punk rock band called Flipper, and I guess not a lot of people are into Flipper, but we both really loved Flipper, and I think that was a little bit of like, yeah, he's like, this guy's all right, he likes Flipper, you know, and everyone's kind of like, you know, that. As an intern, that I was there every day, and that you know, that you know, I just showed a lot of uh, of gumption, um, and you know, we had a couple of conversations about things. You know, I had a, a paper that one of my college professors was pushing me to try and publish, and uh, I talked to Axel about that, and I think that he just kind of liked the perspective that I had in terms of content and. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, you know, like I said before, you know, a lot of the, like Mike all read on X-Force and Pete Bagg giving Spider-Man and uh, yeah, Richard Corbin on Incredible Hulk and soon after Luke Cage. And like, yeah, that stuff was just in my wheelhouse because it was playing against the grain. It was a little subversive in terms of what Marvel had generally been and that interested in me. Um, and so he asked me if I wanted to interview for a job and, you know, he said, you know, worst case scenario, you're the number two candidate, but you're not the number two candidate. And you know, for me, I was still in college at the time. You know, I had a semester ahead of me still and, uh, you know, that I committed to for this uh, semester, honor semester thing in New York. And you know, for me, it was a big decision to decide, like, well, what am I going to do here? You know, I haven't finished school yet. I had... I would actually be completing my major with the semester in New York, but it was uh, it was kind of a, a little, it wasn't what I was planning on. And, you know, it was a big decision to decide, well, do I continue doing what I like to do, you know, with my studies? And I was thinking about going straight into grad school, or do I take the job opportunity? And ultimately, you know, I decided, like, well, you know, I should take this job opportunity because school will still be there if I want to go to school, you know, in the future. And, uh, you know, it was... Uh, it was a chaotic time, you know, at Marvel. Um, not as chaotic as I'm sure it was for all the folks that were there during the, the bankruptcy times in the 90s, but, you know, it was, you know, the things were still kind of, they were kind of reinventing the wheel a little bit. Um, and at the time, Bill Jemis was the president and publisher, and after I'd had the job offer and he sort of decided that he didn't think that they should continue hiring interns as as assistant editors. And so then it kind of like put everything up in the air for a while. And uh, I just kind of had to wait things out to see what was going to happen. And meanwhile, um, the trades office had, uh, had trouble kind of keeping things going after the editor that had been running it had left. And... So when they brought me on staff, they brought me on staff to work for Axel, but asked me, because I was the intern that was editing Essentials, um, if I would help them kind of, you know, 
figure out how to get the trades office functional and, and operating again. And, you know, as a, as a kid who wasn't out of college yet, um, you know, I didn't really feel like I was in much of a position to tell them um, whether I was or wasn't going to do what they wanted me to do. So if they said I needed to work in the trades office to help them get things kind of set on, you know, back on track, then I needed to work in the trades office to help them get things back on track. Um, so that's kind of, that's where I got started um, in the, uh, the non-intern editing role. Hmm. It's interesting because, I mean, I, I vaguely kind of remember what the trades were like when they kind of came out back then. It was very different. Like, I, it's such a such a smooth process that everyone's so used to now. Like, when everyone kind of knows the timetable, when books are going to come out, what, generally speaking, what kind of material we're going to get. Um, and then there's obviously some, always some nice surprises, but it feels like everything is such a, it's, it at least seems like a smoothly running machine. So it's, but it's interesting to kind of remember you know, how, how different it was and how early it was where, you know, they didn't have a lot of cohesion, um, it, or at least didn't always feel like the releases were kind of s- sporadic. And I felt like for years, DC kind of lagged behind in that regard as well. Like I felt like you weren't getting kind of comprehensive ideas of collections and at least Marvel was ahead, but yeah, still kind of haphazard. So you're kind of at the, at the beginnings of this, you know, this, uh, finely tuned system slowly kind of becoming that way. Yeah, I mean, at the time, yeah, DC had a, a bit of a collection. So, I mean, it had, it had a collections program going. I mean, it was mostly oriented towards things that were more of a, you know, more of their vertigo titles, things that function more as a, a finite series of graphic novels rather than an you know, ongoing you know, comic book serial with Superman or Batman that will you know, continue you know, into infinity. You know, but Marvel didn't have... You know, they had the essentials, but didn't have a lot else. You know, there wasn't necessarily, you know, it was kind of, I mean, it was more of a, you know, we'll put a book out, we'll see if this book really catches an audience or becomes a hit or, you know, becomes like a you know, critical darling or becomes something that perhaps we can kind of get out to the bookstore market. Um, you know, but it was kind of a, a, a wait and see rather than, you know, uh, what we do now, which is, you know, it's, you know, we're kind of leading everything, you know, we have a plan in advance, and it, it's not a, you know, we're, we're out there, and it's more, you know, we're going to do something, and if it turns out that it really isn't something that's going to be viable, you know, then, you know, perhaps it would be a collection that might, you know, get pulled off the schedule, um, rather than something that, you know, it's, it's a real, you know, wait and see, um, if there's a market for it, and then kind of, you know, put the collection out after the, you know, the original contents, you know, you know, kind of, you know, a year after the series ends or something like that. Then, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was, you know, another thing where there was just people kind of figuring out how to do it. I mean, it seemed, you know, from an audience standpoint, from readers, I'm sure that it, you know, it seems like it, you know, it must be a simple thing, uh, but you know, there's a lot to take into account for it on the business end, on the production end, on the editorial end. You know, there's a lot of people and a lot of involvement and a lot of resources to devote to things. And you know, everyone was kind of learning it because at that time, you know, around 2000, 2001, you know, it was when Marvel was really starting to get on its feet again and figure itself out. And you know, a lot of the management was new, both, you know, on the editorial end and the publishing end and, and in other places that, you know, well, readers wouldn't think about, you know, 
the manufacturing department or other, you know, like, you know accounting. Um, yeah, there's there's roles and mechanisms that need to be set up for everything to function mm-hmm. across all those different departments. And you know, <laughs> apart from you know an editor or uh, a designer, you know, needing to you know assemble a book, all of these other people need to you know, develop their aspects of things. And it was uh, it was an interesting time. It was a little. It was definitely chaotic. I think when I started. I feel like the average age in editorial was something like uh, 25, and if you inc- if you excluded the senior editors, it was probably more like 23 or something like that. Wow! I mean, it was a it was a young bunch, and uh, yeah, I mean, I was I was 22, just turned 23, and uh, you know, like I said, not even you know technically out of school yet, and uh, you know, I just. Uh, I kind of, I've always had a, I don't know, maybe it's, 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 it's the German in me, but I've always had a, a mind for organization and, uh, you know, just kind of, even, you know, always interning, just trying to figure out ways to, to organize things or streamline things or, you know, make uh, a part of the process and putting a book together more efficient or being able to sort of figure out how to manage and track uh, different updates and schedules slide, you know, with collections, for instance, you know, if the, the comic series that you're collecting runs late, then, of course, the collection is going to be impacted, and can you adapt to that? How do you, you know, keep track of the weekly updates as they come through and manage all your own information and, you know, just how to, you know, you know assume that every book's going to be a 22-page story, but some run short, some run long, and you need, you know, you've already forecast to have a collection that's going to be X number of pages, but then when things change, then it changes the layout of the collection that you've planned, and, uh, yeah, just finding ways to sort of effectively keep track of all that in a way that you can, you can do without going insane and also share with other people so that it's not all in one person's head, um, because, you know, in one person's head because there's simply too much to do. And I don't know, one of the one of the funny things for me is, you know, every now and again someone will uh, send me research for a book that they're they're working on or you know, they want to sort of bounce off me because it's you know, pulling material from stuff that I've previously done collections of and it'll send me a spreadsheet and I just kinda have to laugh a little bit to myself because the the format for the spreadsheet is a spreadsheet that I set up when I was in college before I even never thought about doing anything with Marvel and it was like it was what I used to it was what I used to keep track of like my my like spending and like things that I pre-ordered to make sure that I wasn't spending more than I was making at like my weekend college job and you know, sort of like you know had a, had a table and added added everything up and then you know subtracted uh you know a discount percent and then you know and it, it, for me it's just it's funny because I look at this and I'm just like oh yeah that's there's my old pre-order spreadsheet. <laughs> I always try not to buy too much crap in college. That's and too funny. It, it, now it's what everyone at Marvel uses to plan all the collections. It's, it's kind of funny. So as you're kind of figuring this out as, you know, so you're no longer an intern, now you're working and you're, you know, helping to kind of develop and try and get things back on track in the trades department, you're also technically working for Axel too, right? 
Um, yeah, I was, I was hired to work for Axel, and the notion was that I would be in the trades office for like three months, help them kind of get things going again, um, and then uh, you know I'd pop over to Axel's office, and you know, Axel was you know, tossing scripts for you know Incredible Hulk and Amazing Spider-Man, all that sort of stuff that was uh, in his office at the time. You know, my way to read to kind of keep up to speed. So as soon as I moved out of trades and into his office, you know, I could make as seamless a transition as possible and just basically hit the ground running there. And uh, you know, after uh, after just about three, four months, um, I it was actually the I'd gone because I hadn't planned on living in New York. I'd come out for school, and so all. You know, all of my stuff except for you know whatever I needed for like a semester of school was still back in, in Ohio where I grew up. And so I went home over uh, Memorial Day weekend to bring all my stuff back to you know get permanent and transition into the the you know the role working in Axel's office. And you know, the, the the day after the holiday when I came into work, um, it was just kind of uh, a little unexpected. You know, they asked me to go down to Bill Jemis's office for a meeting, in which the time you particularly as like a pretty new assistant editor, you didn't really have meetings with Bill. So I was like, what's going on? And uh, I, I'd sort of been deemed that I had done things too well in getting the trades office back on track. So I was going to uh, stay in the trades office. Um, so at that point, you know, I was like, well, I guess this is what I'm going to be doing for now until I can, you know, the opportunity arises for them to bring some more people into this office and then I can, you know, transition over to Axel's office. But uh, at that point, I just kind of figured, like, well, if this is what I'm going to do, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to work my butt off at it and get as good as I can at it. And I wanted to get a promotion quickly. And that became one of my goals. Another one of my goals was I wanted to have my own line of books, and that's kind of where the masterworks came in. And uh, yeah, I just uh, I just kind of sunk myself into that. And you know, Jeff Youngquist, who runs the trades office to this day, was the guy that got brought on, and you know, I was you know, there and you know, side by side, and uh, you know, helping set up a lot of the mechanisms that you know keep the office running and you know he was you know, integral you know, he's the guy that keeps it going today with uh, a lot more people and a lot more books than we were doing back in 2002 and, and so he kind of gave me space to uh to do what i wanted to do and one of the things at the time that they'd wanted to bring back were the masterworks and had gone through gone through a lot of different iterations um a lot of different iterations before you know the relaunch had, had come onto my plate, and yeah, I guess that became the thing that people know me most for. What was it about the masterworks that was appealing as you know, kind of this thing to be your line of books? Um, I don't. I've always been a history dude. I mean, history is it's been one of my favorites. I mean, outside of uh, of like my English classes, you know, going all the way back to grade school or whatever, like, history was probably my other favorite subject. And, uh, you know, like, any kid that gets in the comic books, I think usually you just sort of wonder, like, well, what about the first appearance of this character? What about the first appearance of that character? And, you know, you get curious about the history and where everything came from. And 
you know, I just kind of always had a little bit of an interest in that. Um, and, you know, I had a friend who, uh, you know, a guy that, that managed the local comic shop back where I grew up, a great friend, uh, Paul Scheibel, and he, uh, you can blame him for, for me in a lot of ways. He, uh, he showed me what was good and what wasn't good, and, uh, and you know, he kind of told me at one point, uh, maybe a year or so before I'd actually done the internship at Marvel, like, oh, you should, you should check out the Masterworks, and at the time, you know, they'd been dormant for quite a while. And uh, I picked up one at a convention, like for like ten bucks or something like that, and didn't really have time to read it or anything. But you know, the notion was like, this is you know, this is the history. This is where it started. And so, you know, if you if you want to kind of know about uh, why the why the medium is what it is, where it is, um, you know, you, you start at the at the the inception and then you know, work your way from there. So. You know, just history. You know, the and you know, um, I just always you know had had a, a respect and regard for uh, you know for the you know the you know to the broader culture, the unknown people that had created all these characters that are global icons. I mean, even at the time before Marvel really hit it big with movies, and you know, back in two thousand two, um, you know, I still felt that you know that this stuff should sort of be out there so that people can, you know, that, you know, hopefully when these movies hit that there'll be an audience that will come to this and, you know, appreciate it and that'll, you know, share the history and share the accomplishments of, uh, you know, Stan and Jack and Bill Everett and Steve Ditko and all these other guys. Hmm. Now, when you, when you, when you're working, so you, you have the meeting with Bill and then you're going to kind of refocus on trades and as you said, you're going to work hard and try and get that promotion. So how long did it take before you kind of get back into Axel's office? Oh, uh, Axel's office was, was, it's a very circuitous route. Um, so I'd been in trades, um, I'd done the internship in June, June of the summer of 2001. And then, you know, there was the sort of thing that came up with, Bill didn't want to hire anyone that was an intern, um, and then I formally got hired in January of 2002, um, and was in trades uh, until for about a year and a half. And you know, I mean, they knew that I wanted to be, that I wanted to get into uh, editorial proper. And uh, Axel had an opening, but at the same time, there was the Epic line that uh, mm. that was kind of a. a, a, a Good in concept, but you know the concept was you know the, the execution was something that was very different. It was you know Bill Jones had the notion for this line that was got branded as the epic line, where folks you know he saw you know, people doing books I mean, through Image and, and other independent publishers, you know where you know he thought that well you know if Marvel could essentially act as kind of a as a midwife where you know people do their own books and then you know Marvel will. You know, solicit them in previews, which you know, gives them exposure and promotion, and you know the books will get printed um, through our printers, yeah, which Marvel gets you know a better printing rate than somebody coming in, you know, just doing their their own indie book. Yeah, you know, but it you know, it it didn't take into account the like the just the technical know-how and the production know-how that you have to have to to actually to assemble a book and get it to print and get it to print um, with specs 
that will actually have it print well. And um, the Epic Office that Bill had assembled um, didn't, you know, there were good people that had, you know, a good, you know, a good story foundation but didn't have a technical or production foundation. And you know, for the time that I spent in the trades office, yeah, I just kind of threw myself into that that aspect of the job to learn as much about it as I could because you know, I've always just kind of had that mindset of wanting to know how to handle everything that that relates to what I do from top to bottom. You know, if I have a guy in the bullpen that's going to do production work for me, then I want to understand his job both so that I can work with him in an informed way, um, but also so that I'm not wasting his time and giving him, like, things to do that are impossible or that, you know, um, you know a lot of it comes from my uh, my dad is a small business owner. He's run his own carpentry business since the early 80s, and, you know, he's a one-man gang. So you kind of have to know how to do everything yourself, and I think that sort of, unbeknownst to me, unconsciously, I kind of absorbed that philosophy towards work, and so I've always just kind of wanted to know how to handle every aspect of the production of what it is that I'm working on so that I can handle it effectively, hopefully be the best I possibly can at it. And uh, yeah, that came to that, which made me the guy that they, they put over into the Epic office to kind of help advise all the people that were submitting work that was going to be published through that imprint. And uh, you know, it was a well-intentioned imprint, but wasn't something that was, you know, it was just the the investment of resources that had to go into it was a lot more than they had probably anticipated. And so then, you know, that office uh, was disbanded and, uh, you know, I'd gotten the opportunity to jump into that and started editing some of my own series, um, uh, Mystique, with, with uh, by Brian Vaughn and... Uh, and Michael Ryan uh, was one book that got kind of put on my plate that was a lot of fun to work on. And then you know, there were a couple other titles. And that kind of, after that office disbanded, I got moved over into uh, the X office, which at the time was sort of in need of staffing because, you know, a couple of people had left and things just, you know, things, you know, just before the Joss Sweden Astonishing X-Men launch. And once we decided we wanted that that was going to be the anchor for a big relaunch, everything that preceded it had to get on tide. There were books that were like at least three months late, maybe four months late. Um, And so we had to get all those books back on time, um, out the door. And it, it was a bit of a scheduling nightmare, but it's something where... Um, my facility for just digging into a problem and not letting go until I can <laughs> figure out how to make it work um, kind of came into it. And you know, so, you know, my uh, you know, my boss in that office, Mike Martz, was a guy who's you know, excellent at that end of things as well. And you know, he uh, he kind of he kind of let me sink my teeth into that so that he could uh, you know, dig into. Uh, a lot of the other things that we had to deal with to uh, to get that relaunch going at the time. Um, and I worked in the X office kind of until we got that back and up up and running smooth. It kind of it kind of you know, there was a pattern. You know, I'd, I'd been hired and you know, I'd worked in the you know, the trades office because it needed the 
kind of you know get put back together and end up and running smoothly again. And then I moved to the Epic office because it needed to get running smoothly. It you know wasn't functioning well. And then I moved to the X office and it's like and you know, well. Well, it's something that I was good at. I, I was getting really tired. The uh, the cleaning lady used to crack jokes at me if I left before eight o'clock. Um, <laughs> she's like, "Oh, you're going home early tonight, Jeff." It's like seven thirty or something like that. And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, going going home early, cleaning lady." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what was even sadder was like there was one night where I left. She cracked the joke, and then I was hanging out with some friends. You know, it was a Friday, and. Uh, and like we're on the sidewalk in front of a, a, a bar in a neighborhood here in Brooklyn in uh, Williamsburg, and I see the cleaning lady come up. She gets her keys out and she opens her door. And she and I'm just like, what? And then the cleaning lady looks at me and like we both laugh. And I'm like, wow, the cleaning lady lives in a way nicer neighborhood than I do. What's going on? <laughs> well, that's too funny. Yeah, but this is again like yeah, yeah. I'm, everything's a long story with me but anyways um, after the X office got you know up and running smooth again I moved over to Axel's office um, probably two and a half three years probably three years after I was hired to be in Axel's office um, <laughs> so, a long and winding road now but you mentioned Mystique was that that was back during the beginning of, of the short-lived tsunami run right Exactly, yep. Yeah, there was Mystique, Runaways, of course, which, you know, just hit as a TV show recently. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Namor, uh, written by Bill Jemis. Um, That's right, yeah. Um, the, the last issue of that had Bill's Namor haikus, which uh, which uh, I'm, I'm, I'll accept responsibility for the publication of those. You know, I, Bill would send us these kind of conceptual haikus about, about the character, and uh, you know, when we got to the last issue, it's like, we should totally run those, and Bill thought it was a great idea, so Bill's Namor haikus are in the final issue of that. That was the tsunami thing, and and yet Mystique had I didn't launch it. Um, it had launched. I'm blanking on her name. She wasn't at Marvel a very long time. She'd previously been Harvey Kurtzman's like assistant, um, which I thought was super cool. Um, the editor who launched that um, had left. And the book had come into the epic office, and you know, it was on the first story arc. I think I came on to it like around issue four as an assistant, and then with issue seven, we started a new story arc, and, and I came on as the the lead editor there. And yeah, it was with Brian Vaughn and Michael Ryan, and it was the time where we were where, uh, doing sort of what they called like enhanced pencils um, was kind of going things after Andy Kubert had done it on Wolverine Origin. And Michael just did beautiful work in that vein. And you know, I was super stoked on the book. And, uh, you know, it was it was performing well. And Brian's amazing. And Michael is, you know, turning out great work. And, uh, and I, you know, as an editor, sometimes you can kind of see, like, this book is doing well, but it might be doing the talent might be doing too well for what this book is going to sell at, and and you know, then yeah, I, I kind of I kind of you know knew that that Brian was gonna yeah you know, they were gonna tap him for uh, for something bigger, and they tapped him for Ultimate X Men, which was uh, which was a pretty big deal at the time. And so then uh, you know Sean McKeever uh, came on as the writer, and you know we kind of built the uh, the next story arc for that. And you know I worked on that during the time that I was in the X office, kind of set up. The uh, the next arc on it, but you know, by the time the next arc was really uh, into production, I'd moved over into Axel's office. 
Hmm. And when you dive back into Axel's office, so what are you working on at that point? So you've you've been kind of the, the fixer. You've been going around fixing things, and now you're, <laughs> now you're ready to, to really do do the work you've been you were trying to do two years earlier. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's, yeah, I was I was super excited to be able to work on X Force, or uh, you know, then uh, you know, rebranded as Ecstatics. Um, you know, Mike Allred and, and Pete Milligan were guys whose work I was huge fans of. That that first Batman comic that I'd read back when I was a kid was written by Pete Milligan, um, and uh, you know, I loved Mike's Mad Men, and I was really excited to get into that. But you know, unfortunately, the uh, the Controversy surrounding including Princess Di as a character. Oh yeah, and ecstatics kind of knocked the tires out from underneath that title, and so it was it was either wrapped up or real close to wrapping up by the time I'd come into the office, which was a bummer because I mean that the title was one of the things that made me like want to uh, you know, do the internship at Marvel, but you know there were other things that. Uh, yeah, Garth Ennis was pretty early in his Punisher Max run, and I mean, for for my money, Garth's the the most solid, most professional, most impressive writer, uh, you know, of his generation in comics. Um, his scripts are the 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 most solid, confident, direct, well written scripts I've ever come across. So working on Punisher. Uh, with you know was yeah that was you know, something that I couldn't wait to get into and you know, worked on that through the the majority of the Max run um, through Barracuda and, and uh, <laughs> everything else which uh, which was which was a lot of fun and yeah you know, had a you know, trying to trying to ride the line of acceptable content you know, even within a Max book what what we couldn't couldn't get away with uh, got pretty interesting from time to time. Um, there were there were definitely some panels here and there that we had to have redrawn because they uh, they they weren't going to be okay even for a max book. <laughs> but for me, I mean, like you know, like I said a while back, I, I don't comics are the best when they're being subversive. And for me, I was like, all right, we're going to ride this thing and we're going to be as subversive as we can get away with, and you know, hopefully we can get away with as much as possible. So you're working in an editorial. So at some point, I mean, obviously, at some point, you become the, the the core we know now as the you know the 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 maven of the Marvel masterworks. So what happened that kind of ended that run of kind of working in editorial as an editor? Um, well, I, you know, I'd uh, you know, I when I was in the trades office, they were looking to bring the masterworks back, and there was there was opposition to bringing the masterworks back. Um, it's jumping back another step before I get into how I got into it. Um, yeah, the Masterworks had had their initial run from the late 80s into the mid-90s when they'd been, you know, been canceled as the industry was you know, taking it on the nose after the you know, huge speculation period. And Tom Brevoort had been you know, doing everything he could to keep things alive and try and convince people to bring the books back. And you know, trying to bring the books back and he convinced them to do one FF volume in 2000, uh, FF volume six, and it did well enough that uh, he convinced them to do one more. But it was at the time that that book was being put in for approval, it was when Bill Jemis was just coming on as, as the president and publisher. And like 
things were just moving really quickly. There were a lot of new ideas flowing around. And it, this is before my time, but Tom told me this story, which I think is amazing, is that uh, they told him because the SF book did well, he could do one ma- Masterworks the next year. But Tom, being a savvy guy, didn't put in paperwork for one. He put in paperwork for three. And they <laughs> proved all three. Um, so, yeah, that's where we got uh, Daredevil Volume 2, Thor Volume 3, and X-Men Volume 3. Um, there's only supposed to be one book, but Tom was just like, I'm going to put in three and see if anyone notices that I put in three instead of one. And, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, sometimes, I mean, it's, you learn how to get what you want. Um, and uh, shortly after that, uh, Bob Greenberger got brought on, I believe his title was like president or vice president of operations or, or something to that accord. And, and Bob was a big history guy. You know, he was involved in a lot of DC sort of um, kind of like who's who and historical projects. And he really loved the masterworks and kind of wanted the books to, to come back. And he was, uh, he had like oversight of the traits department. And so he was bringing the masterworks uh, back into that department. And, you know, Tom had a lot on his plate, you know, as it was with, you know, editing Avengers and Fantastic Four and, you know, a bunch of Iron Man and a bunch of other, you know, key titles. So the masterworks kind of got brought back, you know, into the, the aegis of the trades office. And you know, there were some notions about it at the time that, you know, people wouldn't want to buy the books if we put them out again. So we have to add something else to the books to entice readers to buy it again. So there were some early ideas. This was like while I was an intern, maybe even before I was an intern. You know, like we'll put like uh, Marvel Superheroes number 14, um, which was a. Uh, uh, a story by uh, Stanley and Ross Andrews. It was Ross Andrews' first Spider-Man story. It was kind of a tryout to see if Ross would be a good Spidey artist. And, and Stan didn't end up particularly caring for it at the time, um, so it got shelved and eventually published in Marvel Superheroes. And the idea was, oh, we'll put that at the back of the first Spider-Man masterworks. Um, and there was, like, for instance, the first edition of the first uh, Silver Age Submariner um, has Marvel Com- the Submariner story from Marvel Comics number one, the Golden Age story in it. And the inclusion of that was like, this is sort of like an added incentive kind of item hmm. that's being you know, put in the book to you know, attract uh, you know, readers that you know, may not want to buy books. The Submariner book was a new edition, but there was a similar line of thinking you know, with the Spider-Man book. And there were other notions with you know, other books. You know, we have to if we're going to reprint Avengers Volume 1, then we have to find some other Avengers thing to put in the back of it to make people that have bought it before want to buy it. And, you know, um, then the notion of time was that that uh, everything was going to be recolored to match the, you know, the original Masterworks editions um, by a place um, named the Alamo Early Color Separations place over in Ireland. And you know, it, was kind of a, it was a massive thing um, to do this. You know, thousands of pages, far more than any kind of reprint undertaking that Marvel had ever done to the point that point in time. And uh, yeah, it was a bit of a you know, it was a bit of a monstrous thing to grab onto. So people kind of didn't want to. <laughs> so you kind of got bounced around between like, at least three different people. Um, during the course of the time that I was doing the internship and after some people left and were let go, this Masterworks thing was just kind of sitting there and somebody had to grab it. And yeah, I, you know, and at the time it was the kind of thing where 
if if somebody didn't jump on it and want to make it happen, it just would have got canceled. Yeah. It just wouldn't have happened. Um, you know, at the time there was the notion that uh, that Marvel wanted to put forth itself and put forth its publishing um, as something that was new and contemporary for the time. Um, and you know, there, you know, feedback from different parts of the company and different you know studies that that you know, had been done. You know, that when most people thought of comic books, you know, at the time in the early 2000s, they thought of you know, something from the 50s, something from the 60s. They thought of, like, a Rory Lichtenstein, you know, painting. Um, they thought of something as very, very kitschy and retro and and something that that was kind of in the past. Um, and Marvel, of course, wants people to be reading and buying and thinking about comic books as something that's very present of this moment. And there was a concern that putting out the masterworks again would kind of it was shifting the direction, shifting towards the direction that the company wasn't trying to present itself as at the time. Um, you know, for my two bits, you know, I thought that you could have both, but I understand why the overarching philosophy was one that, you know, you know wanted, I mean, a lot of the advances in a digital coloring and uh, you know, just trying out different ways of approaching reproduction and experimenting with, you know, incorporating different painting styles to to can reinvent what the look of a comic book could be um, you know, were all happening at that time. And you know, that was those were all coming from the core direction that Bill had of wanting comics to look very fresh and, and uh, of the moment and yeah, they were weren't following trends. They were creating trends, uh, both visually and technically, and in terms of story. And yeah, there was a, the sense that the masterworks were kind of the opposite of that. Um, and I just kind of felt like yeah, I respected the history, and I thought that people should know that yeah, these were the original stories and these are the original guys that created all this. And uh, I just decided yeah, I don't want this to fall apart. So I became the guy who was going to be responsible for the, at the time, just utterly absurd and obscene, you know, notion of getting these thousands of pages of material back in the print. Um, and like, I mean, you'd mentioned at the time, Marvel didn't have, I mean, we did collections here and there, you know, so it's not like we had a huge apparatus for, for getting a lot of material out on a routine basis. So the notion of just getting thousands of pages back into print on top of trying to build a system to do that, to do our regular contemporary collection, um, was just a little nuts. Nobody kind of wanted to get near it. And I, I don't know, I was, I was dumb enough to throw myself into it or just... Uh, I mean, it was. Yeah, I just I cared. And it's really all it comes down to is I just I cared about this work being out there for people to read because I felt that it was important both for the history of the medium. You know, as a kid, I was curious about you know the first appearance of these characters or those characters or you know this key storyline that I'd sort of heard about but couldn't read because you know the books were just too expensive. And uh, you know, part of me kind of wanted to to get that library out there for people to be able to read it. You know, if a kid was curious about wanting to 
you know, read the first appearance of the vision, they could go get a book that had that, that, you know, didn't cost them an arm and a leg. Mm-hmm. So you so how, how does your transition back to just being the collections guy? Cause again, you had a run as an editor, you had all these books that you worked on. So how, how do you, how does that stop or how does that kind of segue into they, going back? They ran, they were, they, well, I started on the masterworks relaunch. Um, and you know, the, uh, uh, what I think, I think readers sort of referring to them as like the remaster works, the, the new printings of the original 32 volumes. Yeah, I, I did that while I was still in the trades office. Okay. And, uh, you know, at the time that was all we were going to do. Um, and there weren't going to be any additional new volumes at that point in time, as much as I wanted there to be. Um, and the point where we started getting new volumes was concurrent with when I'd gotten you know, back to the job in editorial proper. And I, since I'd been so involved in the Masterworks, um, they kind of let me keep them, keep running them. It's kind of a side thing until the person that came into trades to replace me got their feet underneath them, and, uh, and then they were going to assume you know, control of the masterworks, and that just kind of never happened. <laughs> so I wanted to keep the books going, so I just I kept doing them as a side thing on top of all the regular editorial work that I was doing. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, as I was, you know, mentioned that you know, we originally weren't going to do anything beyond you know, going back to press on the original 32 volumes. Um, and prior to the second Spider-Man movie coming out, we had a meeting with Bill about what kind of books we were going to do um, in association with Spider-Man 2, which had Doc Ock as the villain. And you know, we kind of had a big list of books to go through, and it was kind of a yes, no, yes, no, 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 yes, no, no, no. And then we we're getting down near the bottom of the list, and yeah, there was kind of a sense of like, oh, you know, we just can't figure out what else to do. And I knew that the next Spider-Man Masterworks you know, would be the next, you know, the first new one in, in many years. Um, had a big Doc Ock storyline. And so I was like, you know, if we do that next Spider-Man Masterworks, it'll have a big Doc Ock storyline. And they're like, yeah, do that. And <laughs> so, so that's how Masterworks started doing new volumes again. And uh, around that around that same time, a few months, you know, around the time that that book was finishing production, David Gabriel came on as Marvel's book sales manager. And when he came on, I remember having a conversation with him and he said he loved the Masterworks and that he bought both versions of every single volume and you know, both the regular and the variant version. And in the back of my head, I was just like, I'm going to love this guy. This is good. Uh, <laughs> and he's been a huge proponent of the Masterworks from his first day at Marvel. And, uh, you know, he pushed, you know, that we had to do more of these and we had to do more new ones and we had to make this a, you know, a routine thing. And, you know, I had the desire and he had the clout. And, uh, you know, it, to, to the world, it looked seamless, you know, that we, we went from the back to press to new volumes in an unbroken, you know, stride, but that wasn't how it was, that wasn't how it actually unfolded. It was, uh, it was a much more sort of, uh, you know, crossing your fingers and just kind of, you know, harassing people until you could convince them that it was the right idea. And you know, David was integral to that. At what point do you become involved in the reorganization of the Marvel Archives? Um, the, 
After I left working on staff in uh, 2006, I, uh, they asked me if I wanted to uh, keep doing you know, the Masterworks freelance. Uh, it you know, kind of become a thing that was, uh, was its own arcane little world that, uh, that you know, I've been operating. And you know, I just said, sure, yeah, I'll keep doing that freelance. Um, and I only assumed it was going to be a short-term thing. And I was working on books, and at the time, uh, Marvel's archives were being managed by, by a company that was composed of uh, former employees of World Color, which is the printer that printed pretty much every comic book in America from, like, the 1960s at least until, like, the 1990s when uh, it unfortunately kind of got nafted out of business. Um, some employees started a concern doing uh, film scanning and other things that were kind of that grew out of their experience working at that printer and they'd uh, made an offer to Marvel to handle you know, when we're going to do a collection we have uh, the archive of original printing film or photostat reproductions done off of that I mean think of like you know I guess everybody's digital cameras now but if you think of uh, you know a uh, an old film camera, you, know, you shoot the net, you know, shoot, you have a negative, and then you make a print. Um, the negative is going to be the maximum, you know, it's going to be your optimal quality. The print is going to be, you know, a reduction from that. So you can think of film and photostats as having that kind of relationship. Uh, although a very well made print uh, is excellent, just a very well made photostat can be excellent. A poorly shot photostat can be a nightmare. Um, so we have this archive of all of these things going back to the 1940s and it's been bounced around a number of different places throughout Marvel's bankruptcy and it, this company uh, has possession of it and I'm trying to get materials from them to do books and it's just driving me up the wall because they're having a really hard time finding stuff and they're not able to find the original versions, the original print film of the first generation photostats and things. And you know, for me, I want the book that I'm doing to, to be the absolute best humanly possible. I want it to be as close to exquisite as we can manage. And if you, it's kind of, you know, there's, there's an aspect where it's like garbage in, garbage out process. You know, if, if, what, if the best thing you can find is garbage, you're only going to be able to make it so much better than garbage, um, <laughs> despite your best efforts. And I just decided that, uh, you know, it was killing my schedule. I wasn't able to get people all, you know, materials on time so they could do the restoration work. And it was, you know, getting things really close to printer deadline. And uh, I just decided, you know what? Do you mind if I come out and help you guys out, help you find this stuff? And, uh, you know, I bought a plane ticket and flew out to uh, to their facilities and kind of felt like, okay, I get why this is really difficult because there's 70 years worth of stuff here. At the time, more like 65. And, uh, and it's thousands of square feet and thousands of items and if it was an effective system there for how it was ordered, it probably degraded through the multiple moves the material had gone through during the bankruptcy years. And you know, I came back from that and just you know, told the folks at Marvel that 
you know, like there's this is this has got to be fixed. There's just no other way about this. Like this has to be fixed, and I don't see any other way of doing it other than going through every single item one by one by hand with knowledgeable people that know what they're looking at and identify everything, reorganize it, set up a new organizational structure. So if you're looking for something, it's simple and intuitive and quick to locate it and uh, then establishing a database so that you can find and search for the assets that are there um, quickly and in a informed way. When I first started, we had, and this was, like I, I, I like old computer stuff. I told you before that when I first was in the internship, I uh, was working on this ancient Power Mac, which I thought was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I first started, our when we wanted to get something to reprint it, we had this massive, massive, like over a foot thick, like legal size printout. And you remember, like the printer, the printer paper that would like alternate between like white and green stripes. Yeah. Um, we had a huge printout of that, uh, and we had to go through it by hand, like page by page, and try and see if we had, like, if we are trying to find, like, I don't know, Amazing Spider-Man 200. You had to page through this thing, and it wasn't necessarily in a logical order, and, and it was just insane. I mean, if you think of the process of if you want to put out a collection and you want 10 consecutive issues of the book, but you don't have a record that you can search to confirm that you have those they may be in disparate different places and uh, you know, it just it made it next to impossible to effectively uh, plan for a project. It was kind of like, okay, we're going to do this and then we'll get it approved and we'll see what we have and then we'll hope that we've got it and that it's all in good shape. Um, and that, you know, I, just, I didn't see that as, as a, a reasonable way for us to move forward. So I convinced them that we would take, undertake the uh, insane project of uh, going through all this stuff. It was 14,000 square feet. Uh, I think something like 70,000 unique items. And I think we, we did the rough math, and I think it was close to a, a million pages um, And that we went through like one by one, um, every single thing, uh, archiving, uh, you know, coming up. With, with, you know, it was, it was, it was, we did it over the course of three years, about two months at a time, specifically focusing on one aspect of the inventory, um, you know, like photostats and then film and then transparencies and, you know, slides and you know, all the different kind of reproduction sources that, uh, that you know, Marvel's used over the years. It was, uh, it was, it was pretty nuts, but at the same time, you know, we had a, a really good gang of people, most of whom, if people pay attention to the credits pages and Marvel's collections, uh, they'll recognize. You know, this, you know, me and then you know John Rhett Thomas, who people on the Masterworks message boards know as Gormu, um, Michael Kelleher, Wesley Wong, Sheila Johnson, Chris Leeser, who uh, was kind of like an early diehard guy that was on the Masterworks message boards that Rhett knew. Um, we all got together and, uh, you know, went through every single thing in Marvel's archives, uh, one by one by hand, um, over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours. Wow. What was some of the most impressive finds that you found? Um, let's see. Um, 
I remember finding our only uh, surviving uh, photo stats for Fantastic Four number three. Only one, one roll left, wow. and uh, yeah, finding those and you know they, you know, it was that was a real kick. And the oldest, what was it the oldest? One of, one of the oldest items. Um, the the you know, materials going back in the 1940s. We have, you know, we only go back to like the, you know, like late 40s consistently. And I'm curious about whether or not it has something to do with uh, with how printers handled materials with publishers at the time. Because I know that Paul Levitz, when he did DC's 75th anniversary book, mentioned that DC doesn't have any material for its first 15 years. Um, so that'd be 1935 to, you know, late 40s, 1950-ish. Um and, you know, Marvel doesn't have a lot of material for that time period either. Um, but the one thing that I do distinctly remember was a very, very aged roll of uh, Powerhouse Pepper photostats by Basil Wolverton. And uh, I think it was issue three. And, uh, yeah, I'm a huge Wolverton fan, so seeing those was a real kick. It was, you know, it was on a very brittle kind of paper, but it was still beautiful work. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it's not surprising because, like, a lot of the stuff they didn't necessarily think people were going to care. I mean, even in TV, like um, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, the first ten years were completely wiped because they're just like, well, we gotta we gotta reuse the, the the tapes because they're expensive. So all that original footage is all kind of gone, except for you know some of the the stuff that they were able to kind of find the actual uh, scopes, which is kind of insane because that was such an institution. Even something like that, where the company that had that much money still didn't seem to care about preserving it. I mean, you know, there's there's legions of people out there looking for missing Doctor Who episodes. You know, mm. The same thing. It's gonna, you know, it, it, it's true of comics as well. So it, you know, nobody knows. Nobody knows like what's going to be a hit. Nobody knows what's going to be you know something that's going to be fondly remembered. It's just uh, you know everybody does their best to create something, and uh, sometimes it clicks, and sometimes they wish they really would have saved it. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's. I remember, like, I started reading comics in the kind of, and unfortunately, in the '90s. But I remember there was like a few uh, kind of miniseries at the end of the of that decade that I kind of got, and it felt like no one ever talked about them. It's as if they never happened. And then once in a while, they, some of them would like trickle out into trades, and I was like, no way, this is being collected. Like, I felt like I, like I, I had it in my collection, but I was just so excited that I could actually like have it in a book to show it to people. Because like, this did exist. This book actually happened. <laughs> Because, yeah, you know, it's just one of those things where, like, I, it meant something to me. Because, like, again, I was, like, the right age for it. I was, like, 15, 16 years old, really enjoyed this book. Yeah. And no one had ever heard of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for me, yeah, I, I, I started reading comics and superhero comics, like, regularly in the early 90s. And there's part of me that wonders, like, how did I exactly end up doing this? Because there was so much crap in the 90s. I mean, just so <laughs> much crap. But... But there was also a lot of good work as well. I mean, it's just that the the volume that was being published kind of, you know, I mean, in, in any medium at any time, like, you know, there's, you know, X percentage of it is garbage, X percentage of it is mediocre, and then, you know, X percentage, you know, it's kind of, it's a bit of a bell curve, you know, and it's just the volume that was published in the 90s made the massive stuff that was mediocre or bad just seem so much more monumental than at other times, but there was still a lot of excellent work being done at the time. It just uh, had a lot to compete with for shelf space. All right, we're 
right, we're going to have to uh, turn it over to uh, a bit of a lightning round on some of the questions for the Marvel Masterworks Forum. Otherwise, I will get a lot of angry emails because although this has been fantastic for 75 minutes, um, I feel like I, I have to start ask, asking some of these questions. <laughs> I'm, yeah, like I said, yeah, uh, short answers, they're tricky with me. Um, so True. Let's, let's, see, let's see if I can change the paradigm. Okay, let's see what we can do. Um, how do you go about gathering source materials for collected editions? Are there original artboards available on file at Marvel for all the Bronze Age books and later? Um, well, like, a, you know, it's kind of addressed by the talking about work on the archive. So when we're going to do a book, we see what we have in inventory, you know, the original print film, um, which is what publishers kept as opposed to the printing plates because printing plates are big and heavy. Um, so you keep a film negative because it's exponentially lighter and easier to preserve. So we look for the film negatives. If we've got them, we scan them. Uh, after that, we'll look at photostats, and then we have some really unique items for some materials from the 60s, early 70s that are record negs that have a really nice repro, um, but it's very difficult to... Uh, capture all that detail. It takes a lot of work in Photoshop to get everything to reproduce well. Um, but what's fun about it is that a lot of it is before the final corrections were done. So with these record necks, not only do we get great repro, but then we can also see some of the changes that were made between uh, the original, you know, the first rendition that an artist did, and then after the writer or Stan you know, came in and had you know provided their input. So hmm. those are fun. Short version is we look at the inventory, we scan the film or the photo stats. Now you kind of answered and, that this question, but what's the ideal source for a Marvel Masterwork? Um, original art is always wonderful, can't be beat. I try and get as much as I can from collectors. Um, success rate varies, and then after that, you know, the original printing film. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when you get into material, once we get into the digital area era, then digital files. Okay. Do you have examples of some of the best and worst source material they've had to use for a Marvel Masterwork? Oh, yeah. um, best source material is always original art. Um, a couple upcoming Masterworks, I think, no, not all of these have been announced, so I can't say everything, but uh, I've got a, a number of the books that are coming out in 2018 where we've got multiple full issues that are going to be fully restored from original art. Um, the uh, Ant-Man book that was recently announced, uh, at least two full issues from original art there. And then apart from that, the original printing film. And uh, you know, if the original printing film was well shot, which for the most part it was, you know, what we have, it was shot well. Um, the print film is close to the original artwork. I mean, you know, if the exposure, the, the printing film, they're large format, like 20 by 24 negatives. I mean, just think of a, a, a film camera negative that size. Um, so, I mean, it was, you know, for, you know, for what it was, it's a very excellent resolution, speaking contemporary terms. Um, so if the negs were shot well, then the reproduction that we get off of the negatives is excellent as well. Um, but original art is best, and the film is a very close second. Okay, and what was the kind of the, the worst source material the we had worst. to deal with? <laughs> the, oh, yeah, the worst. Um, uh, mini nightmares. I mean, the key is having an inventory in order. I mean, so now that we have the inventory in order, it's you know, it, we usually you know we're always dealing with great stuff, so it makes it a little harder to remember the nightmares. Just a lot of dupe photo stats from stuff from say like the 1970s. You know, when they were doing like 
Marvel's greatest comics or Marvel tales. And, you know, so the film was reproduced off of the original film or photo stats. And so you're a generation away already. If what we had was first generation, that the stuff was being sourced from the 70s. And then that got shot off of the film, which was already a duplicate, onto a photo stat, which is another duplicate. And then maybe they made multiple copies of that photo stat because they're sending things to printers overseas or for licensees. And yeah, it just, it looks like, you know, it got dropped in a mud puddle, stepped on, and then hung out to dry, and then, you know, stepped on a few more times. Um, Okay. You have no idea the pleasure that I get from being able to, you know, say when we were doing the Masterworks uh, trade paperbacks, where, you know, there's some, you know, a number of, you know, items where, that we just had to you know, recycle earlier versions um, when we were doing the Masterworks back to press in mm-hmm. early, early 2000s. And then when I got to go back and actually restore all that stuff with the best possible materials and just, just they have no idea how much satisfaction I get out of looking at that book when it goes to print and it's the best possible reproduction for, uh, I mean, I remember the first issue of Daredevil was a real pleasure being able to put that book out and making it look right and then just sort of details that even in the original printing, um, they would use uh, opaquing fluid on the film to, you know, the printer would use it to um, opaque over things that they didn't want to reproduce in print. Um, sometimes you might notice, like, at the top of a, of a page in a comic that you'll see where, you know, they wrote, like, the Avengers at the top, and it, and it shows through. They forgot to opaque that out. Um, sometimes they, oops, with the opaquing fluid, and there's a page in, it's maybe page three of Daredevil number one, where they oopsed right over one of Bill Everett's very finely rendered uh, faces. And you know, when, you know, since then, the original art has uh, come, you know, come out, and you know, collectors are you know, often very helpful, and we were able to get an original art scan and, and restore that face just as Bill Everett had originally drawn it. And, uh, man, that makes me happy. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That sounds amazing. Um, when working on a title that you might not like, do you need to work harder to maintain the level of quality? Um, no. No, it's, it's, it's all about doing it. You know, whether or not something is my personal favorite or not doesn't impact things. You know, it's, it's, because just because it's not my favorite doesn't mean it isn't someone else's favorite. And even independent of, maybe it's no one's favorite, but the people that originally created that work they deserve the respect and the dignity of getting the best possible presentation of their work. And so that's what I'm always going to do, like just hands down. Um, yeah, for me, it's interesting because, you know, I mean, we both sound like we're maybe around the same age and we grew up in the 90s when you know, there were a lot of not great comic books. So, you know, the you know, stuff from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, even a lot of the 80s stuff, um, I have no personal nostalgia for. Um, I didn't grow up with it. I wasn't reading comics, um, but I can look at it and I can admire the work and understand the appeal and understand its importance, um, and I love being part of that and researching that and bringing it back for people, but I don't come into it with a horse in the game in the race. Okay. Uh, can you tell us a little about the art restoration team for the Masterworks program? How many people are involved? How has the composition of the team changed over the years you've been running the program? And how has the restoration effort changed over the years? Um, you know, at current, uh, Mike Kelleher, uh, the guys from All Thumbs Creative, 
uh, up in Winnipeg. Um, they've been with me since say, 2002, 2003. Um, Mike, since I want to say 2004. Uh, uh, Wesley Wong, Sheila Johnson, uh, both since about 2005. And uh, Tom Mullen, uh, who, you know, who works on stuff. Uh, you know, I had a bigger crew when we were doing all the Golden Age and Atlas books. You know, but there are a number of folks that uh, you know, I haven't been able to keep on, you know, sort of every day all the time. Um, yeah, there's some other you know, people that uh, you know are out there, and, you know, kind of taking the uh, taking the master masterworks method to uh, other publishers. But uh, you know, I ran off the list, but refresh me on the question. I'm sorry. Well, that's pretty good because they're kind of asking how many people are involved. So obviously, there's a number of them, and how the composition of the team has kind of changed over the years. And you mentioned that you know the guys up in Winnipeg have kind of been with you since the pretty much the beginning. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I, um, I think you answered the question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we as as we've dealt with everything that well, we're always always surprised. We always find new surprises, but we've dealt with just about everything under the sun that you can have to deal with in terms of restoration and reproduction and original source material. And so with the years of experience that we have, um, we're not surprised by much, and we've found the best way of approaching whatever it is we may be faced with. So, uh, you know, a lot of it is just down to experience. It's, you know, some of it's just trial and error, like figuring out, like, how can I, what can I, what can I get from this source material, you know, if it's optimal, then there's not much to worry about. Um, and even with something that's optimal, there can be weird issues with how the film was shot. I, I could get real deep in the woods, I shouldn't, uh, because it's probably really boring to 99.9% of the people out there. I don't know that 1% is so excited, though. Oh, you know, uh, to be continued, <laughs> right? We'll, we'll do it again. All right. Um, here's a good question, actually. How many masterworks are typically in production at a time? Um, a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, since I'm, you know, it's not a process where you work on one book from beginning to end and then start the next book, um, I'm you, you're constantly juggling you know, books in various stages of production at all times. So, uh, you know, the way that it generally works is that I put together a publishing schedule. Um, I meet with David Gabriel and Jeff Youngquist. We hash out the books. Books get approved. And, you know, um, generally, you know, in, you know, at once. Um, you know, sometimes there may be a few that we hash back and forth. Um, but I get the green light, and then I'm off to the races. You know, I have the folks that, that manage our film archive um, who are you know, the folks that have been handling it since uh, I'd say 2009 or so are amazing. Um, love working with them and uh, very happy to have them. And, uh, you know, I get a book approved and, and, you know, so at that point, you know, I'm scheduling and I'm working on the full calendar, you know, from that point forward. Um, so it's, for, for me at least, it's kind of everything all the time. Okay. Um, for the guys, guys doing the restoration work, you know, it's it's a little different. Um, but from from my perspective, from the editorial perspective, uh, it's kind of everything all the time. 
Makes sense. Uh, how would you go about accurately remastering mixed media works such as the, the art in Electric's Electra Assassin, where the artist employs a lot of different media on the page or cover? Are there major obstacles to rendering watercolors, charcoal, or whiteout, for example? Um, I worked on a reprint that we did of Electra Assassin back around 2003 or so, building a new cover for the book. And it's a challenge uh, working with painted work, um, particularly what can be challenged is the, um, the, the screens that were applied to the, when the film was um, made. Um, you think of uh, like a, an older comic from the 60s, the way that you can see all the, the Bende dots, um, kind of the, the Andy Warhol, Roy Lichtenstein kind of deal. Um, and then as you move forward, um, yeah, but those dots get smaller and tighter and closer together. Um, and, you know, everything is still printed of tiny lines of tiny dots. It's just the, the printer's abilities to make tinier dots and lines that are closer together have gotten to the point where you can't actually see that that's the case. Um, so with painted work like Electra Assassin, for instance, if the film at the time that it was shot was shot with a... Um, pretty high line screen, then it's not that much trouble to reproduce it. Um, you have the film scanned, it's going to be the same film that the original comic was printed on, and you may have to do some adjustments to compensate so that that screen, if it's if it's a lower screen than what we would print at today, just to make sure that those screens don't show up. And you have to do some tricks here and there to compensate for what you want to have sharp and what you want to have uh, kind of blend. Um, but it's, uh, it's like everything in this, it's detail-oriented, and you have to mind the details. But if, you, if you're tracking the details well, um, it's, it's, it's not as tricky as you might think. Um, it's fun when you've got the originals there and you can shoot them again. But, uh, but you know, since we have the original printing film, it's, it's not a too massive a challenge. If we were talking about working from a printed copy, that's a whole different ball of wax. <laughs> that, would, that would be tough. Um, again, I could get deep in the woods on this, but I won't bore everyone. Okay. Uh, how far ahead of the solicitations are the issues restored? For example, is Marvel Team-Up restored up to issue 50 but only 30 has been solicited, or do you wait until the masterwork is solicited then restore whichever issues need doing? Um publishing schedule, the books get approved, and then I put things into production at that point. Um, so by the time, by the point in time a book is solicited, um, things are well into production. Sometimes a book might even be done by the point that it, the solicitations go out to the public. Okay. And then how flexible is that kind of schedule when you guys are plotting out which the releases are? Like how much movement is there up until, I guess, publication, like in terms of, or solicitation, I should say, in terms of where the books are going to be slotted? Uh, very little change. I, I, I feel like I have a, a, a good voodoo for for the the audience. I'm sure there's going to be like a hundred people that uh, raise their hands and say, "No, you don't." Um, but I, I feel like I have a good sense of uh, of what you know what people want. When's the right time to schedule it? And you know, once things get laid out, it's unless we're unless it. I'm selecting a book to tie in with a specific series, and that series release date shifts. I can't remember. Maybe Deathlock? 
never a move back to death block. Um, when death block series shifted back, and that's been a while ago. Uh, mm-hmm. so not very often. Okay. Um, are licensing issues really as big of a pain as we think they are? What characters would be the most difficult? Oh, that's one for the legal team, not me. I mean, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a pain about convincing people to try and get the licenses so that we can reprint various licensed things, but, uh, but it's the, the folks in legal that actually have to do the, the work on it. Um, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm, I'm a motivator. Um, I am not an executor on that. Um, okay. Once I, get the, you know, once I get the thumbs up, I'm off to the races. But, but yeah, that's a question for, uh, for David Althoffer or someone else in Marvel Legal. Okay. Uh, can we expect for future omnibus reprints to feature improved artwork using the art files from the artist editions? Um, this is like IDW's artist editions. Is that what that's referencing? I think that's what it's referencing. Yeah. Um, when and where I am able to, I'm always happy to make things look better. Um, you know, if you know, like I said, the uh, you know, if we have the original printing film and the origin, original printing film of, is of excellent quality, um, comparable, and you know, I I go through all of the available sources with a ridiculous amount of detail and time. Um, you know, so yeah, it says how much we could improve things if it's really substantive enough that it's going to justify the additional expense if I can convince uh, the powers that be to uh, approve the, bu- the budget to move forward with the additional expense that's a, that's a key one right there mm. um, yeah but when and where possible I'm always happy to um, I, I, I think actually I remember seeing this question and they were asking about uh, an issue of uh, Amazing Spider-Man which you were talking about what's uh, a nightmare reproduction uh, there's an issue of Amazing Spider-Man with the lizard where the source material, the best source material we have is not the best source material. Um, <laughs> and uh, I know that that's an issue that uh, I look forward to improving um, from the original art that's been, uh, that's been gathered. Um, but, you know, it, it, I, since I can propose things, but I don't get the... I'm not the guy that approves things. I can't say in a blanket way, yeah, that, yeah, everything will, every piece of original artwork that we come across, every page will then be upgraded from that. Um, in an ideal world, it'd be cool, um, but it comes down to whether or not that's something, you know, um, there's a saying that, uh, that was shared with me very early on uh, when I started working at, uh, at Marvel and I've heard other people in publishing uh, say it, and it's uh, the book that you print is always better than the book that you don't. Um, mm. So, you know, if, if, it's not doing a book at all or, you know, making a few select upgrades um, that sink the budget, then, you know, the book's going to, you know, they're going to, you know, we're going to want to do the book. Um, you know, I, I push as much as I can um, and I get a lot of support, um, but um, I can't guarantee every single original art page will then get rolled into a future Marvel reprint. Um, it, it, it'd be pretty good around you. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to your, your answer before about the, the idea that you're a, a big motivator, um, is there a specific uh, item or character or comic that you were ex- really motivated to try and get, and were you able, were you successful at the one that you were kind of the, the most the biggest cheerleader for? Um, in terms of license stuff, yeah, um, yeah I, I was angling for Master Kung Fu for for the I mean the 
for left uh, omnibus just came out recently, and I was first angling for that back in 2009, 2010. Oh, wow. um, yeah, so it, it, it can be a very long road, and uh, you know, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that everyone decided that it was a good thing to do, and uh, it was a real pleasure to get that work back out there. Um, you know, and there's a lot of support within Marvel. Um, you know, but with licensed stuff, it's it's not Marvel's decision alone. Um, you know, uh, there you know, there's another party involved, and they may not be interested in it. They just may not see the value in it. Um, and you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. So, mm. and that sometimes we're stuck. It's not us. It's the true. Uh, this is actually a question I thought was interesting. Do you have a stopping point in your head? Something like, quote, I can't picture myself masterworking anything past 1995, for example. Um, I wouldn't say that because it's, you know, it, for me, I, I've had extremely long-term plans for the masterworks for a very long time. Um, when we came out with the Epic Collections, the notion of the Epic Collections is that, you know, it has you know, all of the original runs um, of Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, Iron Man, Avengers, etc. Everything's planned out and mapped out. We know what each book is going to be. Um, I've functioned that way with the Masterworks for a long time, um, and I'm always working very far down the line in terms of my my research on how I want the composition of each book to come together what's going to work best in terms of page count, what's going to work best in terms of creative arcs, what's going to work best in terms of the budgets that I have to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm always way down the line. Um, so you know, the notion of you know, that I have a stopping point isn't really applicable because, I mean, you know, I, I could be at the point today that when I started in 2002, you know, no one could have conceived that we would be you know, this many hundred issues into a given title. Um, but, you know, part of the way that we get there is by always planning ahead so that you don't find yourself backed into a corner um, or wishing that you've done a book differently at some point. Mm-hmm. I'm so far down the line all the time that I don't, it, it just doesn't come to play for me. This may not be applicable as a question, but you mentioned the the epic collections. Um, I mean, obviously, you're you have your own kind of purview, but were you involved in the kind of the mapping of the epic collections at all? Or, or? yeah, yeah, yeah. The epics are all kind of a you know um, when I mean for me, I do the research, the editorial, the production, um, the design, and all the books that I edit. Um, you know, Mike Kelleher and, you know, Wes and Sheila and, you know, Peter and the All Thumbs crew, you know, they handle the, the art restoration. But apart from that, it's it's me from from top to bottom. And, uh, yeah, so if there's a book that has my name in it as editor, it's a book that I've handled the research on. And so for the epics, all the epics that, uh, that I handle, which roughly are from the beginning of each series run into, like, the early middle 80s, um, yeah, I handle the research for all those, and then Jeff York handles the research for a lot of the other collection editors' uh, material from the 80s and 90s. Uh, there's just there's a lot of material from it to uh, keep straight, and particularly from the 90s, and, and Jeff has a crazy head for it in a way that, uh, <laughs> that I don't... I, I don't know if I could wrap my head around it. I mean, he, he's got a love for it, and so, you know, we, we let him rip, and uh, he's amazing. So, you know, Jeff and I would kind of discuss, 
uh, kind of the point where, you know, it basically the research end of it would be on my plate for me to figure out for my books and for him. And, you know, we'd, you know we always have, like, a conception of, of how to handle the material and what would be an ideal break and what are kind of the key transition points and so on. Um, and, you know, in that initial transition, you know, Jeff will kind of, you know, deal with the ethics like he did, you know, say for, I mean, just off the top of my head. I don't think we actually had a conversation on this one, but uh, to like Amazing Spider-Man and, you know, he's, you know, he kind of did his projections for how things would work from, you know, like say 1987 forward. And, you know, I did it from 1962 to that point. And, you know, he, his first book was coming up a little short or it was a little tight. And, you know, if say there were a few single issues at the end of the last volume that I had done the research on, it's like, well, we'll shift that forward to kind of balance out the books so that we're not running into budget problems or page count problems. Um, so there's coordination there. And then as a group, uh, you know, uh, me and Jeff York and Jeff Youngquist and Mark Beasley, you know, we all kind of, you know, knock things around when we initially uh, launch a new Epic line. You know, I'll kind of be in the trenches. Jeff York will be in the trenches on his end of it. We'll talk back and forth, and then we kind of put it forth to everybody. And uh, you know, it's kind of if anyone sees any problem areas, yeah, then we address that. Otherwise, things are locked. Um, yeah, and I've been operating in that way with the masterworks on my own for a long time. So, you know, it's it's not too much trouble. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think early Masterworks and Omnibuses being out of print or very hard to find is a barrier to entry into the Masterworks or Omnibus lines to new collectors? Um, if what we keep in print and don't keep in print is more of a David Gabriel thing. He, mm. he, I produce them. He has to manage uh, you know, all, of the, uh, all of the financial ends of it, which I do not envy, um, and I'm glad that he can handle it because... <laughs> Um, I don't know that I would want to have to juggle that on top of everything else. But uh, we have things available in so many formats that I feel like there's, you know, that the people have an entry point to the content. Mm. And then if they decide that they really love the format, then you know, I feel like you know, I see people, you know, on a routine basis posting that, you know, they just became a Masterworks reader. And, you know, it took them like 18 months, but they tracked down every single volume. And, uh, <laughs> And, and and I'm impressed. Yeah, um, yeah. That's 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 some that's some good hunting. Um, but as to whether you know maintaining uh, a a huge backlist is a difficult thing for a publisher to do. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it's yeah, there are a number of factors in in terms of just cost and changes and tax laws from decades ago that affected backlists and the way the publishers manage them. Um, you know, and at different times, you know, Marvel's approached it from different ways. And you know, I think that, you know, we do a pretty solid job of keeping content out there for people. Um, and as to, you know, as to whether it's an impediment, um, how it would be to some, but at the same time, I see other people that it's it's not an issue, so it's, you know, it's kind of comes down to, to each individual, and you can't account for every single person's taste. It's, uh, it's, it's 
too diverse of an audience. True. Um, now, this is a question I thought was actually quite interesting, which is, uh, do you regret not including letters pages in the masterworks? Why are they worth including in the omnibuses, but not in the most pre- most prestigious line of record? Um, well, when the masterworks were brought back, um, you know, like I said, well, the masterworks had never had letters pages. Um, and when we brought them back, we were wanting to, you know, we didn't want to create something... We didn't want to isolate or ostracize or make the people that had invested in the books when they originally came out feel like they would wasted their time or wasted their money. Um, and yeah, we also had a very gargantuan effort to undertake and adding more things into that wouldn't have made it more possible or, or easier to get done. Um, the notion of letters pages at the time had honestly it hadn't really crossed our minds and when we started the omnibus um, the first omnibus we did was FF Volume 1 that came out with the first FF movie as I recall and uh, you know for us we had like we you know we were just like well we'll take the first three FF masterworks and we'll do it in an oversized format and you know again we were thinking of ways to try and make the omnibus seem appealing um, and maybe give some people a little something more um, so we decided to put the letters pages in the first FF omnibus. And I know some people ask you why the letters pages are in some omnibus and aren't in other omnibuses. Um, I can't speak for um, the uh, research and the considerations and the constraints that may apply to the you know, other books, but you know, because the first omnibus that I was involved with had letters pages, I consider that the standard for the format. So Okay. Now, this is interesting uh, as a question as well. As a follow-up, is uh, these letters pages? Where do you get them from? Original stats or reconstruction? Um, almost always uh, the original print film. Uh, occasionally, we may have one um, where you know, we don't have the original film, or we have a you know film or photo stats. Same with everything else. I've done some crazy research into the original fonts that they used on the letters pages in the 1960s to identify them and look into like redoing the typesetting to match them, um, but it's a pretty insane process, and uh, you know, it's, it's something that's just, you know, on, on my more insane days, I dig into. <laughs> Uh, this one, I don't necessarily think it may, may not actually be a question for you or not something you can answer, but it's uh, it's a bit of a long one. It says, uh, you just completed an awesome run of six Master of Kung Fu omnibuses that weren't masterworked as well as Punisher Back to War. Are there future plans on the horizon for another omnibus that will bypass being a masterwork first? Um, I, I don't edit all of the omnibus, so it is. So... Is there something that I would edit that would come out as an omnibus before it would come out as a masterworks? Um, anything's possible, <laughs> as much as I could say there. Um, you know, masterworks are, are, are my wheelhouse, and I love them. Um, it was Punisher. It was something that we've added around a couple different ways, and I thought for a variety of reasons that the content that we wanted to include didn't quite... Um, match with the the, the the aegis of the Masterworks format, so I thought Omnibus would be a, a better format for it. Um, mm. But there could be the next book down the line where we're sort of saying, oh, should it be an Omnibus or should it be a Masterworks? And I could be like, that's a Masterworks, no question about it. 
Punisher. I thought it should be an omnibus for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. So everything is on a case-by-case basis. Okay. Um, I kind of like this one. Is, um, is your plan for everything that has been masterwork to be omnibused? Um, or do you think it would even happen? Um, I, you know, I, I don't think so. Uh, I think that there's some stuff that masterworks would be where it lives. Um, um, I, I, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't guarantee um, anything because you know it's, uh, the final say is not always my own. Um, but no, I think there's some stuff where masterworks just can be like where it lives. And uh, if you want a, a collection of that content, then yeah, the masterworks are are, are your thing. Okay. Uh, now this is kind of an interesting follow-up. It kind of inverts it and says, uh, "Are there any plan? Are there plans for everything you omnibus that hasn't already been masterworked to be masterworked? For example, Amazing Fantasy or Master of Kung Fu." Um, I don't know if Master of Kung Fu would, um, because the license. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other things that have we've done in omnibus, but yeah, I can totally see it going out in the masterwork. Absolutely. This is kind of a tough one. I don't actually know if you can answer it, but it uh, says, uh, can you understand why some people would like to see a hardcover collection of Simonson's Thor with original coloring? Is there enough demand to warrant this, and do you prefer the recolored version? Um, for, that's an interesting one. Um, with the Simonson Omnibus, uh, it's the approach that Walt wanted to have for doing it as a single release in that format um, and you know, I absolutely think it's a beautiful book and I respect what Walt and Steve Olith wanted to do um, for me I'm dedicated to uh, to you know, putting things out and you know, restoring them to, to match the originals with, with something like that omnibus where it's an independent thing it's not part of a larger line whose reason to be is archival restorations uh, it can it can do its own thing uh, for the masterworks um, yeah, I can't wait to get the waltz for run and when the masterworks get the waltz for run you know, we'll restore them to match the original editions the original comics um, you know it, it is a for me it's a real it is what it was philosophy um, you know when the masterworks originally came out um, you know there's some fun stories behind how how the Masterworks originally came into being that Tom DeFalco shared with me. And, uh, you know, the notion was at the time that, you know, they had to put more bells and whistles into things and, you know, do like what, what you know, for that point in time was like the, the most high-end coloring with gradations and all these different things to give it this real premium look that would convince people to, to buy it in a hardcover format. But the content itself, um, you know, you know, was a strong selling point, but it needed more. Um, and what, you know, for me, um, I'd never seen a copy of Fantastic Four number one. It was outside of my my back issue budget. I'd never seen an Amazing Fantasy fifteen. And when I started the Masterworks up again, um, fortunately Ralph Macchio 
um, whose name we see in special thanks in almost every Marvel collection. Ralph has his original uh, Marvel Age collection from when he was a kid, going back to FF number one, and he's super nonchalant about it. And I'd say, like, hey, Mr. Ralph, can you bring in Fantastic Four 1 through 10 for me? And he'd put them in a, in a manila envelope, and he'd bring them in, and, uh, you know, and I started paging through them. And you know, I had the original Masterworks, and, and I was, like, my jaw dropped. I was like, well, wait a second. This doesn't look anything like the original comic. Like, what the heck? I mean, for me, in my mind, I bought this, I had this hardcover book, and it was supposed to be the archival like, presentation of Fantastic Four 1 through 10. I thought I was seeing Fantastic Four 1 through 10, but I wasn't. I was seeing the 1987 editor and colorist reinterpretation of what Fantastic Four number one should look like. Oh. And that that's not, you know, for me, that, that that's kind of part of what set me on the path. And there was also pinups that were left out and things like that, which just kind of blew my mind. I think in the pinups, like in the first Spider-Man book, that they'd taken out a Spider-Man Annual 1 and added it like, to the back of Amazing Fantasy 15, and it was filler, and it was used so they could maintain the page turns they want. And there were different editorial notions behind why they did it that way. But to me, there was, there was nothing that made it clear that, that that presentation and that content and that you know, coloring and look um, wasn't what was the original comic. And, and I just couldn't conceive of doing it without, you know, to me, you know, it, if something's different, then you know, we should let the consumer know that it's not the authentic original thing. And you know, that just kind of that, that put me on my holy mission to restore everything uh, to the original. And uh, I, I wouldn't have it any other way on the Masterworks. Um, so when we get to Walt's Thor, it'll look just like it did. Um, and, you know, we'll also have, you know, the Omnibus, which is a perennial superseller, and, you know, they'll both do fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of an interesting question. Have you ever, uh, quote-unquote, put your finger on the scale to get a line you wanted for your collection moved up to the pile? Maybe. I mean, you are a motivator, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, when I was when I was on staff, and I knew I was going to leave staff, and I wasn't sure what. Yeah, you know, I had no at the time no no expectation that I would continue doing the masterworks, and um, you know I also wasn't sure yeah how are these things going to do future at the time you know doing new ones was a fairly new and novel thing for us and uh so ff volume i believe it was eight and nine came out fairly close together and that was me just trying to speed them up a little bit so that i could make sure that the kirby run got finished before i left the staff gig <laughs> um, and then yeah i mean maybe warlock volume one would have taken a little longer to get to but when i my first you know it was a batman reader when I was a kid. The first Marvel comic that I read when I was a kid uh, was, was Infinity Gauntlet number one. And I, uh, I went to the corner store and, you know, I was, I, was, uh, you know, I was 10 or 11 or something like that and pro wrestling was big with Hulk Hogan and so on. And I bought WWF Magazine regularly. And this comic with this really cool cover. And I had WWF Magazine. And, you know, I don't know if they can, they can prosecute me if they like, but, you know, I didn't have enough money, you know, to 
by Bolt, the comic was smaller, and they put it inside WWF the magazine. That's how I got Infinity Gauntlet number one with Adam Warlock, who yeah, became one of my favorite Marvel characters. When I got hired at Marvel, when I did my security interview, they asked if I ever shoplifted anything, and I had to tell them my first Marvel comic, only thing I ever shoplifted. <laughs> it set me on my path, I guess. Yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah. This is no. This is a, a longer question, but uh, the 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 poster said, "I remember there was a year or two when Masterworks were coming out probably at a pace of eighteen to twenty per year. Uh, then we got into a long stretch of twelve a year, and now we're starting to see some double months coming out again." His question is, when you were putting the books out at the higher rate, did that feel like too much work to fill a ske- too full a schedule, or were you prepared to increase production of the books if needed? Um. I'm, I'm I'm ready to figure out a way to do it. Uh, if we, you know, no matter how many books we're going to do, so you know, at the time I think we did 22. Um, you know, but I mean, that's just the hardcover masterworks. At the same time, you know, I'm working on omnibus books. We were doing new restoration on some of the masterworks trade paperbacks. So, you know, there, you know, it wasn't in, in you know, even now, you know, you know, I won't, I won't let everyone know how many masterworks we're doing for 2015. That's that's. that's um, but yeah, the, the number of books that we're doing is yeah, that I'm working on and that my team is working on is is you know, larger than just you know, the number of masterworks a year. So you know, even then, we were doing more than that number implies, and um, you know, uh, we're, we're busy folks. And, yeah, just we've done so much for so long, tens and tens of thousands of pages. Um, you know, we just know how to get it done. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the next question here. Okay, so we have, um, let's see, this listener said, uh, I seem to remember in past interviews, uh, you cited some of your favorite stories, such as Infinity Gauntlet and Tomb of Dracula, among others, but we haven't seen your take on them yet. Are, we st- are you still hoping to collect those stories someday in some format? Um, sure, fun. I worked with Tom Palmer on a bunch of books when I was an editorial, and he's an amazing guy. And, uh, you know, Gene Colan is a genius, and, you know, Marvel Wolfman did wonderful work. Tomb of Dracula would be fun um, as to when that might fit appropriately in a future release. Um, can't say I've got that answer or that I would <laughs> even tip, uh, tip it to readers if I knew the answer. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I... You know, it's, it's amazing work. I'd love to work on it. Uh, I'm a huge Steve Gerber fan. Man thing would be awesome. Mm. All right. Any interesting stories about getting people to write the introductions to the Marvel Masterworks? Any great or not so great experiences in that department? Um, lots of great experiences. I mean, lots of great experiences. Um, you know, the you know, Stan's written a number of intros for me, and you know the first time your phone rings and you just pick it up, you don't know who's at the other end of it. You pick it up, and it's like, "Hey, Corey, it's Stan." <laughs> you know, and I remember, I remember the first time that happened, and I was having a particularly bad day at work. And when the phone rings, you pick up, and it's Stan Lee, and he wants to talk to you. That it was a great day from that point forward. I mean, his his like it, 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 it's all real. Like his enthusiasm, his exuberance, um, it's all there. It's all real, and it's genuine, and it's it's really fantastic. I mean, you know, I've I've gotten to talk with Stan on a couple occasions and have him you know write pieces for me, and uh, yeah, the 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 guys with ninety five and going strong, and 
and yeah, he, he, he's a legend for a reason. It's yeah, can't you know it's hard to get better than Stan. <laughs> and there's just a lot of other folks. I and mean, Roy, you know, Roy is uh, fantastic. Set the tone in a lot of ways for the introductions that you know we do in the masterworks, and yeah, I mean, it's just so many great people and so many people that I've gotten to know over the years. You know, Steve Englehart. You know, even if a lot of our correspondence is just you know email. Um, yeah, you know, and you know, getting to meet people at conventions. Uh, you know, Herb Trimpey. Um, you know, I remember seeing him at the convention in Baltimore and talking about him. Doing, you know, he just done an introduction for me not that long before, and we were talking about doing the next introduction for uh, the next Hulk Masterworks, and you know, it was just, you know, it was going to be great. And uh, you know, it's never, never would you imagine he was going to be gone. Um, you know, um, so yeah, you know, there's there's some bad things there, but you know, at the same time, to to get to to know these people and you know become friends with you know some of them, um, it's, a, it's a real pleasure. And you know, as a as a history guy, you know, I I, I love great stories, great stories from a lot of them. Um, you know, and uh, you know, she never she never wrote an introduction, but she proofread almost every masterworks. Uh, fabulous Flo Steinberg. Um, mm. Who passed away recently? Um, yeah, was uh, was one of the greatest people you could ever know, and uh, you know she was she was lovely and will be dearly missed. It's kind of an, an odd question from a listener. What's your favorite Daniel Johnston song? I know who this is from. Um, this <laughs> is from Rhett. Um, Rhett is a big Daniel Johnston fan, as am I, and, and coincidentally, as is Michael Kelleher, and uh, we all. <laughs> um, most people wouldn't know Daniel, um, but he's an amazing musician, um, a huge Captain America fan, um, a talented artist in his own right. Um, he suffers from schizophrenia, and uh, so that informs a lot of his work and makes it extremely compelling and unique in his, his songwriting. is is fantastic, and he's on his final tour right now. Um, and he added a date in New York and I went to the show and I actually was able to uh, go backstage and meet him in person and he's a huge Captain America fan so I brought him uh, a copy of the Golden Age Captain America omnibus because he's a huge Jack Kirby fan and so Brett's asking about that and man I don't know if I can say off the top of my head. Um, right now, we'll say Walking the Cow is my favorite Daniel Johnson song, but I can probably think of two dozen other ones that are just <laughs> as great. All right. Uh, is there one book or issue from your personal collection from any publisher that you wish was restored and reprinted accurately or closer to the original? Um, I'm not going to go there because I can... I can <laughs> I can look at any book, including my own, and I can pull them apart five ways to Sunday. Um, <laughs> you know, for, I, I just, yeah, I can. Um, you know, when you do this, you know, long enough, and you, know, you try and you know, make it as much of an, an art as, as I've tried to, I can look at, I can look at any book, my own included. You know, I, I, I do the best, but then they have to look at it, and just, I see, you know, it's something that most people would never notice in a million years, but it jumps out to me. It's like, how did I miss that? Um, <laughs> So you know, I look at I look at other other books and people people do some amazing work um, that I love reading and I you know, I can tell all the effort that goes into it and you know I and there's other ones that you know I, I yeah um, they could use a helping hand um, so I you know, um, I live in a glass house I won't throw any stones okay 
Uh, are there any other archive lines, such as Library of American Congress, uh, Fantagraphics, Disney, etc., that you like, and what do you like about them, and have they influenced any aspects of the Masterworks line? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, hmm. Yeah, I like the stuff that Dean Laney does with the Library of American Comics. Uh, he's always doing interesting work, and I actually met him uh, while I was doing some research, um, and I got to go out to dinner with him and you know, kind of talk shop and trade stories. Um, so yeah, Dean's doing great work there. Um, the Lou Russ Cochran EC Library stuff that that's you know that stuff set a standard. Uh, you know, most of it uh, reproduced you know, right from the original artwork that Bill Gaines had held on to. Um, so off the top of my head, you know, I'll I'll, I'll throw those two down, and uh, I'm sure I could come up with a lot more. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people doing really cool work out there. Okay, uh, what does uh, your collection look like in terms of the hardcover types of hardcovers you buy personally? Um, personally, I, yeah, I'm still kind of a, you know, kind of, kind of the, the guy that I was before, you know, I started doing work for Marvel in terms of the stuff that, uh, you know, I, I have outside of what I work on. Um, you know, a lot of underground guys, a lot of alternative guys, um, you know, foreign stuff, uh, Pete Back, Robert Crumb, Charles Burns, Chris Ware, Joe Sacco. I love Joe Sacco's work. Um, you know, uh, Frank Cho is a guy that you know I loved working with, and you know we're still friends. And you know Frank does beautiful work. Uh, Esad Ribbit, um, Esad, uh, you know, everything he does is just fantastic. When uh, I traveled around Europe back in 2006. Esad let me crash in the studio in Zagreb for two weeks. Well, it was only supposed to be three days, but it was with Esad, so two days became three or two weeks, <laughs> really quick. And uh, yeah, it was, it was it was fun hanging out with him, and it was while he's working on the Silver Surfer project. And you know, so we, I, you know, I I wasn't officially his editor anymore, but uh, but I, I I tried to make sure that he was still getting something done while I was there, so I didn't feel too guilty. Was that Silver Surfer Requiem? Yeah. Oh, that's such a gorgeous book. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought I worked on Loki and Silver Surfer and uh, you know, the early stages of the Submariner book, and Esad's work is fantastic. And you know, people should check out the the new book that he has coming out soon with Ivan Brandon uh, versus. Uh, it's it's going to be great. Hmm. Um, have you? This is kind of an interesting question. Uh, has DC Comics ever tried to hire you? Uh, a couple times. <laughs> to be honest, um, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, for Wildstorm uh, back in the day, and then Bob Paris uh, for uh, their collections department as well. Um, you know, Marvel keeps me busy. As long as Marvel keeps me busy, I'm a Marvel man. I mean, you know, I've been on contract at various times, um, but you know, um, I, I like what I do, and I like the people that I work with. So I'm going to keep. So long as they keep me busy, I'm going to keep doing. And you know, beyond that, if uh, uh, you know uh, anybody wants to throw me offers, uh, <laughs> go for it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm going to keep making masterworks for as long as I'll let. True. Well, so here's a question. This is my own question, but what does your collection of original artwork look like, and do you have one? Um, not a lot. Um, you know, when I was 
uh, a fan before I started at Marvel, and you know, I got a few convention sketches here and there, um, only at like a convention or two, and then I picked up a page from a lot of the different series that I edited as the lead editor. Um, so, you know, I've got a, a page from um, Spider-Man miniseries I did. I have uh, a J.H. Williams uh, Warlock cover, um, oh, and nice. J.H. is genius through and through. So, you know, having one of his pieces, particularly a cover, and particularly the character that I really like, um, yeah, is a, is, a, is a great thing to have. Uh, a couple of Mark Texera Wolverine pages uh, that Tex was kind enough to give to me. Uh, he, gave, he gave me a page that has Wolverine kind of like uh, running off, and he said it was because I was, I was running away from uh, from that office job. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, now this one, I don't know. If, I don't know if you actually want to answer it, but uh, the question was: Do you have a white whale? Something that you would love to put out, but have not been able to do yet, either because of rights lacking or it is not a priority of Marvel. Um. Huh. Of a white whale, maybe. Um. I don't know. I'd have to. I'll, I'll, I'll let that percolate, and I'll see if I can circle back to it. Okay. Uh, what work made you the proudest? These are all the meaty ones. Yeah, these these, you know, these are deep um, in their way. Um, there's a lot of books that I've been very proud to be able to do. Um, the one that I think has probably been the both the, the most challenging in a lot of ways um, in terms of uh, bringing everything together and making it look um, as it should. Um, and also gratifying for me from you know, a reader standpoint because you know, I mentioned that a lot of the stuff I do, I don't, you know, I, 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 I'm coming to it um, not from a nostalgic position. It was some stuff that I read, you know, when I was, before I did this professionally. Um, but Miracle Man was a, a book that really, and uh, had the opportunity to bring that back and uh, restore it and work with all the original artists. Uh, was you know, a, a, a real, a real honor, uh, a challenge in a lot of ways um, to pull it together and, and do it right, and uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of that work. What is that? What is the process behind kind of bringing that back to life? Kind of work like how did like how did you kind of approach it? Um. Well, you know, a lot of it was converting you know, began with. I mean, I had an idea in my you know of how to approach it, but uh, you know, for me, it was wanting to to talk as extensively with the original creators as, as I possibly could to get their perspective on it, because of course the series was originally done you know, for black and white reproduction and warrior. Um, you know, color wasn't something that was an immediate consideration. Artists um, had you know, you know, for instance, Alan Davis told me I sent Alan Davis uh, the PDFs of the Eclipse color versions. He had never seen them before. Uh, oh wow! Ever. And uh, <laughs> you know, and yeah, you know, he so he said you know he came to. I remember he said you know, I, 
it comes with, this, with, with any sense of nostalgia. Um, Alan has a, has a very uh, specific uh, sense of how he wants his work colored, and, and you know, he uh, did not care for the presentation on, on that version, so he was very happy to uh, to bring it back in a way that, uh, that you know, represented how he would like his work to be presented. And you know, Gary Leach, who is an amazing guy, um, so much fun, and like has a, a, a memory that uh, is the envy of somebody that you know, does work like I do. And you want somebody that remembers all the details and then has a massive archive of stuff. He saves so much cool stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know, we would just you know, be emailing back and forth and you know, talking with them. And you know, Gary is a, a colorist and a painter and has a, a specific color sense. And you know, he established the foundation for the whole series. You know, and everyone that came later was, was following in his footsteps in terms of how they approached the, the style and the tone of the series, um, at least in the original three graphic novels. And, uh, you know, Gary and I worked with Steve Olaf to develop a style that we felt was appropriate, that in as many ways possible was period authentic to when the material was originally created. So Steve wasn't you know, doing the digital coloring he was doing hand coloring in the same fashion the methods that he actually pioneered in the late 70s um, to uh, to do the new coloring for Miracle Man and then you know he was doing it by hand scanning it bringing in the Photoshop to incorporate it with the, the line art and then making adjustments here and there to you know make everything uh, kind of synthesized together and it was a lot of it was we want to create a, you know, we don't, you know, we don't want the 2014 rendition of this material. We want to treat it for what it was and approach it from the perspective and the philosophy that it, that it was created originally. And, you know, uh, Gary and Alan and Rick and, uh, and, you know, John Toddleton were all wholly, you know, behind that. And, you know, they worked with us on every page and approved every page and, you know, discussed things and did it with us. And it, it was a real pleasure to do it and, you know, just to go back. And, you know, people probably don't realize, particularly now that they have the new editions to read, is that there were there were a number of, of continuity errors and gaps and things like that, particularly... Um, in book two, there's a chapter where uh, where Gargunza uh, sets Miracle Dog to chase uh, Michael Moran and, and Mr. Cream off through the jungle, and it's supposed to be set at night, and it was originally, in its first publication, um, colored as a daytime story. <laughs> and, and so, you know, so one of the things that's sort of going through this, and it's like, you know, we really need to make sure that we get this as a you know, correct because it, you know it's been some people are close readers some people are not but you, know, you have to be as deep into it as you can as the editor and you know, that's just one of the things that is like I, I felt a lot of satisfaction over you know, actually getting it right wow. um, which isn't to say that it, on, on books that I edited as the first time editor I didn't make mistakes myself because we all do we're you know we, you, you do your best and lines are there and you've got to push the, the stone up the hill on the next one mm. you know, as soon as that one's done yeah so we're this is we're about to enter the uh, the rapid rapid fire lightning round because uh, I know it's a lot of questions that are either going to be no comments or no's 
Okay. Are you, are you ready? <laughs> I think we were already rapid fire, but my, my answers are too long. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I feel like these ones are where the answers are just by the by the way that the questions are, are phrased or built, that the answers are going to be a lot faster just by general questions. Um, so, no, no problem. Just, 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 just make it fun of myself. Um, <laughs> go for it. You were pretty good. Uh, all right. So, are we any closer to seeing a resuscitation of the Atlas line, and in particular, the next volume of Venus? Um, I'd love it. Uh, absolutely, I would love it. Um, I push for it every year, and I will continue doing so. Okay. How did the Kirby Monster Bus do? And do you see a path forward for a Ditko Monster Bus and Wish Upon a Falling Star and Everett Monster Bus? Those would be beautiful books. An Everett book. There's a lot of Everett out there. Um, uh, I. I I made preparations. Um, I don't have the final say, so buy the monster book. Buy one for your friends. Buy one for your grandmother. Buy one for your cat and your horse and your goldfish and uh, your neighbors and just yeah, buy as many of them as you can. Okay. Will uh, Will Marvel ever do a complete Pussycat collection? And if not, will they let someone else do it? Um, I don't foresee it doing it and as to whether someone else could do it is that's a question for a lawyer not an editor true uh, what is your personal preference masterwork or omnibus I'm a masterworks man love the format love the size um, you know oversized is cool and all that um, I I dig it um, but I, I like the masterworks more okay who's your favorite it the living colossus or bantam from 1993 Cap America annual I uh, definitely hit the living classes. You can't go wrong with the big monster. <laughs> Do you prefer cats or dogs as pets? Uh, my cat's sitting right next to me, but I always had dogs growing up, so uh, an equal opportunity. <laughs> Any chance, even remote, for a Marvel romance omnibus collecting my love and our love story? Mm, chance, sure. <laughs> Very remote, though, right? Um, probably, yeah. Yeah. Uh, any chance if the rights are obtained from PBS for a Spidey Superstory bus? Uh, because it's a legal thing, I can't say one way or the other. Um, okay. Uh, is it distracting when Gormu is looking over your shoulder watching a work? You know, he's got great vision from down there in Georgia, but he doesn't bother me that much. <laughs> All right. Um, why have some of the various X-Men one-shots, such as Obnoxio the Clown, Texas State Fair, been overlooked by the Masterworks program? Um, personally, I wouldn't say overlooked. I considered particularly Obnoxio people. I didn't know what the heck that was, and I got a copy of it. I didn't, Obnoxio is like the, you know, the character from Crazy Magazine. It's, it's really an Obnoxio story. It's not an X-Men story. It's an Obnoxio story that they threw X-Men in to try and get some sales. It, it doesn't tie into X-Men in any way, shape, or form. It, it, just, you know, it, it didn't really have a place in, you know, when, in, in the X-Men Masterworks. And, you know, Okay. If I were to you put things like that in there, it would be pushing out more deserving stories or raising the prices or making the books less likely to happen. And you know, it, that, that certainly wasn't, I wasn't going to fall on that sword. Okay. Uh, why have all, the mon- all of the monster comics, such as Son of Satan, Monster Frankenstein, uh, Tomb of Dracula, Werewolf by Night, etc., been neglected by the Masterworks program and released via Omnibus or Softcovers? Um... Those books aren't books that I edited, so I 
can't really tell you the full reasoning behind it. Um, Mark Beasley is a big Tomb of Dracula fan, and he pushed hard to do essentials of it back in the day, and there was not a lot of support for it at all. But he pushed very hard for it, and he got the first one out, and it sold gangbusters, and so it kind of became kind of his thing um, by extension of that. And uh, yeah, so he's done a lot of the horror stuff. Um, you know, like I said before, I, I totally dig Steve Gerber's man thing, and uh, there's a lot of other good material out there. Uh, yeah, I'd love to get to it uh, when the opportunity is there and the time is right. But um, as for the approaches on format for that stuff, since I haven't edited those, I can't really tell you the reasoning. Okay. Uh, is the Eternals a candidate for the Masterworks treatment? I'm sure that there are a lot of folks who would like an upgrade over the Omnibus's glued binding. No comment. <laughs> uh, do you wish that you could recall and recall and destroy the older, inferior versions of Masterworks? Um, no. Um, I certainly want to have the best version out, but you know, we wouldn't have gotten to where we are um, in any other way than going through the, the, the process of learning how to how to do it and, you know, being insane enough to uh, dig through every single item in Marvel's archive uh, by hand and uh, get everything into order. Um, so yeah, they, they, they were best efforts for their point in time, and uh, uh, I much prefer the current restorations we have, but, I, you know, I won't, I won't malign, you know, those other ones. It's, you know, like I said before, I won't comment on other publishers, you know, short followings because I've had my own. Mm-hmm. Now that time has passed since the Marvel premiere hardcovers were released, is there any chance that the Marvel Presents era Guardians of the Galaxy will get the Masterworks treatment? Um, I'll, I'll say no comment on that one, just like Eternals. Okay. Uh, any chance for a Sergeant... And this is getting into a little bit of questions on can you print this. Uh, any chance for a Sergeant Fury volume, or is he permanently riding the pines with Rawhide Kid? I totally dig me some Sergeant Fury and love John Severin. I got to work with John Severin on uh, one of his last books, uh, The Punisher of the Tiger. Um, and, God, he's great. And, uh, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to do some... Uh, get as much of John's work out there as you can. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to see some Sergeant Fury. It, part of it is just uh, timing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I know that the next Sergeant Fury that's around the corner, of you know, researched uh, what we have in terms of source material, and it's going to be a difficult one, and, you know, insert a difficult meaning expensive one in terms of the restoration costs. Um, so, you know, that's, that's something that also kind of sits in the back of my mind, the combination of what's the right time for it in the bigger picture of things, and then, you know, how can I work to put the book out in the way that it needs to be restored and presented um, within the budget logistics that I have to deal with. Yeah. Okay. Uh, In an interview about a year ago, you laid out your plans for the first three volumes of Doctor Strange omnibuses, but will these only be released if there are three Doctor Strange films? Um, I wouldn't say only if there were three Doctor Strange films, but chances are that they would be released in conjunction with the films because the films help sales. Absolutely. Uh, Any chance for a what-if omnibus? Mm, I 
sure, there's a chance. Um, there's a lot of licensed stuff in there, so it would make it a little tricky um, on that front if it was intended to be something that was complete. Um, yeah, I, 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 I have a, a stubbornness for completism. Um, and, uh, you know, there's things like Marvel 2 and 1 and, uh, and Marvel Team Up that, uh, you know, is, is, is someone said, uh, you know, they, they were riding the pines for a while and until, you know, the, the opportunity was there, the time was right, the stars aligned in all the different ways um, to be able to get all that licensed content into those books. And so, you know, with something like What If, um, you know, I'd, I'd sure try real hard to make sure, you know, everything was in there that we didn't skip anything so um that makes is there a chance yes it's going to be more difficult because of those considerations Mm -hmm. Uh, is there a plan for what happens when a sequentially numbered omnibus meets a creator specific omnibus such as if a cap omnibus volume three lines up with cap by kirby will an eventual cap volume four be a straightforward reprint of the existing omnibus will it skip the issues contained in the omnibus and pick up afterwards or continue the established pattern regardless of the existence of the creator specific book on the Kirby Cap stuff because um, I can't wait to get to that stuff in the Masterworks and restore it from uh, some really amazing source material that we have. I love that 70s Kirby stuff. So when we got there, it wouldn't be a straight reprint, but we'd have lots of upgrades from Masterworks to incorporate. And uh, in terms of the numbering, um, I would think that we'd probably do a numbered version. Uh, that would be something that we'd discuss with David Gabriel and kind of see what David thought was the right way to approach it. Um, and, you know, it's a, we'd cross that bridge when we got there. Um, you know, I could give an answer today, but based on the logistics of where things were at, when we were actively looking to do that book, um, it, could be the, you know, it could be the other answer at that time. Um, Okay, uh, this is kind of an interesting one, because I, I never thought of it this way, but uh, around the time Marvel printed Spider-Man by Roger Stern, did color saturation and darkness of inks and black become altered? Mm, uh, no. Um, we've been using the same production specs. Um, I think what they would be thinking of would be the Photoshop color profile, um, and we've been using the same one for uh, over a decade at this point. Um, so if there's a perceived saturation change it would be on the printer end and I think I would remember a significant difference like that um, so so no I mean certainly nothing on nothing on our end and nothing that, that jumps to mind that I recall is is a, is a printer issue that uh, demanded a you know, further attention okay uh, is another Marvel rarities volume a possibility down the ways and what content would it likely include? Uh, sure, definitely a possibility um, in terms of what content. Um, I don't know if I want to tip the scales on that. You know, I've I've got a few different approaches hashed out, and uh, you know, as with the first rarities, which was focused on Silver Age stuff, you know, the second rarities, um, to an extent, it took its form. You know, once we got to the point where you know we we done the material except for the rarities and so the shape of the rarities became apparent um, so the, I, I'm always making notes and updating my research and knocking around different scenarios and things like that but exactly what form it'll be in that will be kind of you know it'll it'll snap together when we get there that's the 
one thing where like the long, long focus planning that I do uh, um, doesn't necessarily apply. Okay. Um, why are Marvel omnibuses printed in China when DC prints theirs in Canada? Does this affect the binding? Um, binding, of course, has a has a yeah. There's been yeah. Uh, there, there there are reams of conversations about it um, on the Masterworks message boards um, and other uh, collections uh, message boards. I saw that we weren't getting the kind of even with with Smithstone stone binding, um, that we weren't getting the kind of results that, that you know, we wanted uh, from our domestic printers. And at the time, I just remember looking at, you know, where were other publishers printing? Where was DC printing? Where was Spanagraphics printing? You know, where was Dark Horse printing? And I felt that they were they were all overseas. And you know, the, the, the printing plant that printed the Masterworks, uh, it was like a... 40-minute drive or something like that away from where I grew up in Ohio. So, of course, I, you know, would have loved for all that to stay there. Um, you know, ultimately where we print is the decision that I make, but uh, after trying with the printer over and over again to try and get the kind of binding that we wanted and not getting the results that we wanted, you know, the only thing was to, to, to try elsewhere. And you know, we found that, um, you know, with this, the same printer, our Donnelly, but it was, you know, with uh, their their printers uh, in China. And so that's where we went because that was both uh, the quality of presentation and manufacturing that we wanted. That was absolutely what readers were demanding. Um, and we weren't getting it with uh, either our domestic American printers or uh, uh, the printers that we'd used in Canada at the time. And uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was a, a process and it was difficult and it was, you know, it was frustrating trying to, trying to weigh what way to go on it. editors read the Marvel Masterwork board? I'm a Marvel editor, so um, I guess I would say um, there's at least one. Uh, I know <laughs> other guys do, absolutely. I know, you know David Gabriel looks at it, and you know, um, you know, other folks you know, you know, pop in and chime in from time to time. Okay. Um, do you interact more with the EIC office or David Gabriel's office? Uh, yeah, David. Uh, yeah, David uh, oversees uh, the, the 
office uh, is under you know his purview and his oversight. Um, you know, work in conjunction you know with the editor in chief and uh, you know, special projects or special considerations, things like that. But you know, David is the one that you know handling you know the the direct oversight logistics of, of what and when and. Um, Okay. Um, let's see. How many titles that have yet to be initiated do you have mapped out? Yet to be initiated. Uh, I have to pull up my spreadsheet, but uh, I would, uh, the short version is a bunch. Okay. Uh, of the existing titles of, say, ASM, FF, and Uncanny X-Men, how far ahead do you have them mapped out? Uh, years and years and years. <laughs> That's a good answer. Um, <laughs> how can you possibly top your, your Kirby Monster volumes? Um, I'm sure I can find a way, but I'm not going to tell you how. (laughs) All right. Uh, And how much involvement do you have in slipcase box sets like Famous First, Secret Wars, Civil War, and Infinity Gauntlet? Um, I was involved with the Masterworks box set a little bit, um, but those were ones where uh, where the I kind of came up with some of the basic design considerations and, and things like that for the book spines and how to think that the smaller omnibuses will ever will ever become a trend we've definitely seen some you know the a little bit of kind of moving away from the more traditional i guess not not traditional but we've gotten used to the kind of the 1200 page almost 1300 page omnibuses but then recently we've also had some smaller ones do you think that'll ever become a trend um you know every every, every book is is you know uh, kind of a case-by-case situation um you know with things you know that long-term plans, you know, for instance, some people were surprised by the recent Thor volume, but, you know, it was the equivalent of four masterworks instead of three masterworks, but, you know, that's because I'm, I'm, I am looking way down the line from that individual volume to, you know, multiple, you know, omnibus uh, after that, and, you know, that volume's a larger page count because that's what it needs to be for the big picture, and the next Thor volume might be a smaller one than an average because of you know, the creative runs, um, you know, the you know, different things that need to be taken in consideration for volume breaks and what makes the best book, um, not just for that single volume, but for four, five, six, seven, eight volumes mm-hmm. down the line. Um, so there's nothing that is really a standard. Um, it's, it's all based you know, on a case-by-case basis. Okay. And what can, and I guess uh, to kind of wrap us up, uh, is there anything you can kind of tease about upcoming volumes that, you know, as you said, you're, you're, you're way ahead of us in terms of your preparation and knowing what's coming out, but is there anything you can kind of tease for us? Um, let's see. I've got to double check what, oh, Ant-Man was the last one, the, the, the next book that'll be solicited. Let me make sure it's the next book. Get a little spreadsheet action coming up here. Um, so the yeah the next book 
on the 2018 schedule. I got my rough hash of 2019 sitting here already. Uh, next one for 2018 is going to be uh, a iconic book that uh, is topical and um, features one of Marvel's uh, no question, greatest artist in his some of his best work. Um, ooh. Yeah, there's there's other things that are very topical for 2018 that are coming up. I guess that's a decent hint. Um, mm-hmm. Very topical for 2018. Um, so that's not that far down the line. Um, let's see. I don't know. I don't know how what else I can say without uh, uh, tipping things too much. Well, I'm sure people will have, you know, if they get through the first two and a half hours of this, they uh, will hear that, you know, <laughs> that one line of a hint and they'll be obsessing about it and posting about it, so. If they get through two and a half hours, it's going to be because they're asleep. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I mean, this is this is what they get for making it to the end. It's it's this yeah, tantalizing. Yeah, so. yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe, yeah, but it, yeah, maybe if they need a bigger hint for listening to me ramble on for two and a half hours. Um, <laughs> yeah. 2018. 2018 is very relevant to one of the upcoming books that I'm extremely happy to be doing. Now, are you? I mean, so I mean, 2018 is about about to come about. But like, are you already kind of pitching what all your titles for 2019 are going to be? Like, just how far ahead are you? Um, I have a rough hash of the 2019 schedule. Um, worked up a lot of budgets and things like that. Uh, usually, you know, we do the meeting uh, to start to plan out the publishing schedule for the next calendar year around the end of February or something like that. So in February 2018, we're locking down 2019's full schedule. Does it sometimes drive you nuts that you can't talk about stuff because it is so far ahead? Yeah. I mean, some of it is just, it's just you know, too far out. And the other part is, you know, um, people show up for the announcements and they enjoy it and they enjoy wondering what's going to come next and looking forward to it and participating and speculating and mm-hmm. you know, throwing around their ideas and it's it, it, it's part of being a fan and just, you know, I don't want to tip the hand too much because it, it takes that away and, you know, but sure. people people get a lot of enjoyment out of that. And, you know, I, I wouldn't want to take that away from anyone. Well, I guess because even last, was it last year when Gormu had the... Um uh, the contest where, you know, who could name the, the next two uh, volumes uh, that were coming out at that point. And that was, the, there was a lot of interest in that. Yeah, I remember we did the contest about, uh, about well, there's a free masterworks and then there were... Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I already can't um, remember exactly when it happened, but I just remember there was so much, like, that that thread was being posted on every day. <laughs> I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe we should do another contest. Um uh, we'll see. It's been a it's been a pretty busy year for me, and on a lot of levels. So uh, yeah, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how things shape up as uh, you know move into the to the new year. Maybe we can do another one of those. Excellent. Um, anything else you would like to leave us off before we uh, finally uh, let you enjoy the rest of your evening, if there is any left? Now that uh, we've been talking for two hours and forty minutes. Um, you know, I just, you know, thank everybody for their support and input on the books, and uh, you know, the, the, the community of people that have participated with the Masterworks um, have uh, pro- provided a, lo- a lot in terms of making these books what they are. You know, a lot of it is, you know, it's been, you know, me following, you know, my instincts and my gut and, you know, my desire to, to find the every way possible to make things the best that they possibly can. But, you know, readers that have been engaged and uh, participated and have been, uh, um, 
delight in 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 their uh, in, in in their in their criticism. But you know, I mean, some of them have been polite in their criticism as well. Um, yes, yeah, I, I I take it all into account and I try and measure it. I try and see what we can do and try and answer and speak to the audience because you know if we do the books um, for them at the end of the day and uh, and you know it's for me it's been a real pleasure. And, uh, and an honor in a lot of ways to have this opportunity. And, you know, I think of, you know, for me when, you know, when I was curious about, you know, the first Spider-Man story, the first Fantastic Four story, the first, you know, whatever character, you know, Will Eisner's original spirit um, and wanting to, to read that and know what that was about and, um, you know, kind of have a library. For me, it's a real, you know, it's a real dream to come through to have been able to create a library for people to be able to experience all these things and have on their shelf kind of, you know, what I and I, I, I assume most, you know, comic-loving kids like always wanted to have like the library of all these books, you know, all these iconic stories. And, you know, I, the fact that I've had the opportunity to, to bring that into a reality is, uh, is, is something I'm very proud of. I actually just realized I had one more question from a friend, Curtis Finlay, who does the Epic Marvel podcast. And uh, I oh, yeah. asked him specifically, any questions for Corey? And I almost completely forgot about it to this exact moment. No problem. Uh, we, we, can, we can throw it out for Curtis. All right. Uh, he said, uh, I heard that after the Avengers Marvel Masterwork uh, 16 and 17 got a new re- restoration. Sorry, I guess he heard that they got new restoration. Uh, but it has the same contents as Avengers Epic Collection, the final threat that came out only a couple years before um, the new restoration. What was wrong with the Epic restoration that needed to be corrected for the Marvel Masterwork? Um, the Epic book was one of the first Epics that we did, and we were using the material from the Premier Classics on that um, and, you know, it, there wasn't an opportunity to, uh, to bring the attention to it that, uh, you know, uh, I wanted to have. Uh, so we had to wait for the Masterworks to do that. I mean, the, the, the budget considerations for an Epic versus Masterworks are, are I don't want to say night and day, but it can be very close to night and day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so when they, the Masterworks rolled around, you know, I was, I was, you know, right there to, uh, to bring all that stuff up to stuff. There's, particularly when you get to that period in like the late 70s and into the early 80s, the printing just took a nosedive. If I ever have some spare time, I've been thinking about doing an Instagram feed or something like that, providing like side-by-side comparisons of restoration and then the original printings um, just to sort of exhibit you know, what we do.
objective accuracy rather than every person having their own individual interpretation of it um, because it could be very subjective. Um, and that's what we apply on all the masterworks so that everything is consistent whether, you know, person A, B, C, or D is working on it. They can all use the same methodology to look at the original, see the line screens, understand exactly what that value is supposed to be, and then restore it accurately. Mm-hmm. With the stuff in the 70s where the printing just, it just turns to mud, and uh, it can make it extremely difficult. Sometimes those books from the late 70s literally take four times longer than the average issue to, uh, to proof. Um, to make sure that everything's accurate and going in and actually identifying everything like channel by channel. So like go through the page, go through the magenta, go through the page again <laughs> to go through the cyan, go through the page again to go through the yellow, um, you know, then go through, check the line art and confirm everything matches the original, original printing and there's no edits or changes that were made after the fact. Um, mm-hmm. Now that brings up an interesting question. So given that at the time, I guess those Marvel Masterworks weren't that far away, and given the state of that Avengers material, why was it one of the earliest epic collections for the Avengers? Um, it was coming out in close conjunction with an Avengers film, as I recall. Okay. It's been a little while, so the film schedule versus, you know, because, again, because I'm, I'm so far ahead of... Uh, my timeline and where I'm at is so far ahead from you know when uh, things actually come out. I mean, like with the masterworks, the book is I'm done with the masterworks. It's off to the printer, and it doesn't come out for five months, a little more than five months um, after I'm done with it. So you know, sometimes the timeline gets a little jumbled um, in terms of you know being able to to, to track that in my memory. Um, gotcha. But I believe that they wanted to do that first Avengers one um, in association with one of the Avengers films. You know, and Thanos is a big concern in there, and Thanos was a, a key character in the content of that volume. Okay. And the, the, the final threat is the story title from one of the two Jim Starlin uh, annuals, of Avengers Annual Seven and Marvel Two and One Annual Two. Gotcha. Well, that makes sense then. It was just yeah, because it did seem interesting. <laughs> Given if there was that many issues with the reprinting, but yeah, if, the, if it's thematic, then I I get why they would want to put it out. Sure, sure. I mean, there's, there's, you know, we try and synergize as much as we can with uh, you know, different things that are going on in the current comics and film and TV. And uh, as I recall, that book was one of the we wanted to get uh, the Thanos material out there at that time. Um, you know, but I've been very happy to uh, give it a little masterworks boost. Actually, you know what? Before we say goodbye, I have one last question. I promise that this is the last time I'll do this. <laughs> um, no problem, man. So you mentioned uh, when David Gabriel came on, like you guys kind of got along together because you both really had this kind of love of the Masterworks content, this, this the idea of the Masterworks. Has there been a Masterwork that um, that David was super excited for that was kind of was kind of pushing ahead of the schedule because he really wanted to get that particular uh, Masterwork out? Yeah, Dave, David. David has his idea about what he wants. Is because, like I said, he has he buys every single volume. One of his assistants uh, told me once that when you walk into his place, the first thing that you see is a bookcase with all the masterworks. Um, <laughs> and you know, and uh, yeah, there's been a few. Like for instance, I mean, the, the one, the main one that I remember is when we were getting to volume 50, which now has been you know we're up over volume 200. 
250. Uh, we were doing volume 50. I wanted to do the first Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., but David was dead set that it had to be Captain Marvel, and it ended up being Captain Marvel. He got the veto. Um, yeah. That's awesome. So, I guess, you know, that, that, that would be, uh, you know, and there's other times where, you know, there's something that, you know, I kind of think, like, oh, now's the time, and David, you know, you know, you know says, like, you know, not now, and it'll get pushed back a year or something like that. But for the most part, I mean, I come up with a plan, and I've been doing this for long enough, but you know, I'd say that 95% of things, you know, uh, kind of go along with the uh, the schedule that, that I dream up, which... Yeah, I'm very thankful that they, they kind of trusted me. So do you have a general sense of what uh, Volume 300 is going to be? Oh, I've, I've been thinking about that. Um, yeah, I have been thinking about that. I think i got a general sense for sure, absolutely. There's definitely a couple candidates. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you so much for spending so much of your time this evening. We really appreciate it, and I'm, I know everyone on the uh, the forum will definitely appreciate it as well. 